Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the questionably talented Jason Peters, and with me today is the man who once sold Russell Brand an eight ball of bunk cocaine, Mr. Ryan Seabold! Screw Russell Brand! How's it going, Jason? <laughs> not bad, not bad. Hey, you know what? I, for what it's worth, I think he like did it all so quickly they didn't even notice it was bunk. So, you know, both of you won, really, at the end of the day. What's done is done. What's done is done. <laughs> I also heard a rumor that you like coined the phrase eight ball. Is there any truth to that? Uh, that you came up with the term eight ball? Hey, no comment. Are you a cop? Because if you're a cop, you have to tell me you're a cop. That's the deal. <laughs> you know what? I'm pretty sure from Breaking Bad, that's actually not true. Do you remember that scene with DJ Qualls? You know, uh, <laughs> cinematic confessions. I actually uh, did not like Breaking Bad. I'm the one that did what? not like that show. I watched a season that's, and a half, and everybody that's freaking told offensive. me. They told me that the show was going to get better, and I stuck with it, and uh, and it just did not get better. Um, it, you know, they lied to me, just like I lied to Russell Brand that one time. And so <laughs> I guess what goes around comes around. I'm trying not to let this affect my view of you as a person, but, like, I mean, it's almost, it's almost a weakness of character, not like Breaking Bad. I'm not going to lie. Wow. I yeah, mean, no, there was just there. nobody. There were there were no redeemable uh, characters in that whole. There was no one to root for. I just thought everybody was annoying. His whole family were annoying, and everybody kept telling <laughs> me, "Well, just stick stick around and wait." You know, like they get their comeuppance and this and that. And uh, no, nah, man, I'm not gonna watch like six seasons of a show in a Netflix movie just for like some grand payoff to a bunch of annoying people, like. That's terrible. That's terrible TV programming. That I mean, just one man's opinion. No, that's a that's a fire take, dude. I mean, that's like that's a hashtag hot take. That's like yeah. something that is gonna really divide the six people that listen to us, dude. Yeah, I I mean, I hope at least one of them agrees with me. One out of the six is all I'm asking for. <laughs> but you know, I mean, hey, look, it's not uh, different strokes for different folks, and that. Uh, that one did. That one broke me. Yeah. You know what? Like somewhere out there is the guy that lost the role of Jesse to Aaron Paul. And I'll bet you he hates Breaking Bad. What if it was me? What if I was that guy? And like I had all this deep seated resentment, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we finally we finally get to the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah, right. It was my I could have been somebody moment, you know, could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, uh, I think we watched we watched at least one, if not two, films, didn't we? We watched a couple of movies. Uh, we watched a great, great film called Hero uh, from 2002 or 2004, depending on what part of the world you watched this sucker in. 
Uh, and we watched Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which we will get to Badass. shortly. That, uh, whew, that's, that's a, yeah, we're going to talk about that one. Uh, but first, we're going to start with Hero. <laughs> uh, at a nice, brisk hour and 39 minutes, I thought this one was very well paced. Uh, iTunes describes Hero, starring martial arts legend Jet Li and a visually stunning martial arts epic where a fearless warrior rises up to defy an empire and unite a nation. Exclamation point. They use an exclamation point for enthusiasm. With supernatural skill <laughs> and no fear, a nameless soldier embarks on a mission of revenge against the fearsome army that massacred his people. Now to achieve the justice he seeks, he must take on the empire's most ruthless assassins and teach uh, the enemy that he has sworn to defeat. A powerful lesson, acclaimed by critics and honored with numerous awards. Hero was nominated uh, for both an Oscar uh, and some other awards. This is Dynasty Warriors, the movie, uh, brought to us by <laughs> the great Quentin Tarantino, who brought this over to the States. That's how I saw it. Uh, that's how I found it, rather. Uh, it came out over there. <laughs> you watched in, it with Quentin Tarantino? Why no, no, well, not me? with him. Not I'm so with jealous. Him. Yeah, I mean, hot take. He hates Breaking Bad. I hate Breaking Bad. We hang out sometimes <laughs> on the weekends. <laughs> No, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was like a, a very short-lived uh, series of Asian movies that had the header over the VHS copy or DVD copy uh, brought to you by Quentin Tarantino or Quentin Tarantino Presents. Um, and he was responsible for going and rounding up this small series of movies and bringing them over here to the States via Miramax um, and uh, yeah, formerly the... The, the the formerly good studio by the <laughs> shitty uh, Harvey Weinstein. But uh, yeah, uh, that, I guess it came over there in 2002 uh, over in Asia, and it came over here in 2004. So that's when Got I it. saw it. But this is by uh, Zhang Yimou. I love this guy, House of Flying Daggers. Uh, he's a great, great director. Uh, a couple things didn't hold up for me, but we're going to get into that. Jason, what did you think about this movie? So, dude... I didn't love it the way it sounds like you did, but I didn't, I by no means thought it was a bad movie. Like I thought it was a totally solid movie and we'll go ahead and get into the whys behind that in a little bit. Before we continue, we're going to go ahead and play a trailer and let's listen to a couple minutes from Hero. soldier with no name, a warrior with supernatural skill, and no fear, on a mission of revenge against the army that massacred his people. things right, he must take on the Empire's most ruthless assassins and reach the enemy he has sworn to defeat.
Now, Ryan, before we continue, do want to let the listeners know that this is a foreign film, obviously. And if you've listened to the show before, you know that when we do these foreign films, except in the case of the wonderful dubbing of El Mariachi, which is just mwah, unparalleled, <laughs> uh, there's really not <laughs> there's really not any English dubs for these films that we can play for clips. So as a result, we don't have any clips to play for you of this movie. You're just going to have to spend the rest of this first half of the episode with nothing but me and Ryan and our droning ass voices. So, uh... Sit tight, kids. It's going to get a little rough. You're welcome, America. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ryan, uh, like I said, you know, the I, I, I thought it was a good movie. I didn't think it was a great movie. Unlike yourself, I had never seen this movie before. And, uh, okay, so just so I don't sound like a complete asshole, well, how do you pronounce the director's name again, please? Uh, I've always pronounced it Zhang Yimou. Uh, this is uh, something I've always struggled with. Uh, in Asian cultures where I think they put the last name before the first name, they do their surname like, first. Like Yao Ming kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's Wong Kar Wai, sometimes it's Kar Wai Wong, I don't know. So uh, whether it's, but I've always just called him Zhang Yimou. Uh, but look, he's kind of a hit and miss guy. Um, I okay. loved this movie when it first came out. This was... um. Chris Doyle is the cinematographer, and he is uh, pretty nasty. I love that guy. Um, uh, mm-hmm. He's been working with Wong Kar Wai. I love Wong Kar Wai stuff. His uh, movies are always just really beautiful and vibrant and very well shot, whether it's 2046 or going all the way back to uh, In the Mood for Love or Chunking Express. Chris Doyle is an Australian uh, cinematographer, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, came over to Asia and started working with all these Asian directors and uh really made a name for himself over there and kills it on this movie some things did not hold up for me on this film and we'll get into that uh like we said but overall i enjoyed it i liked house of flying daggers more um and zhang yimu the director goes on to make uh some actually pretty lackluster films uh not the least of which is the 2016 movie the great wall with matt damon okay um Oh, yeah, but, I do remember that one. I mean, I didn't see it, but I remember. Like, yeah, yeah. Did you ever see House of Flying Daggers? So, no, dude, I haven't seen any of these movies. The only movie from that entire period, which was like the first one, what, 99, was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And to be honest, I didn't love that one. I thought it was interesting in certain parts. But um, I think at the time, too, dude, I was in a, I was I was in high school. I played football and listened to Pantera. So, like, watching this really lyrical sort of balletic operatic sort of very romance driven approach to kung fu like just didn't resonate with me at the time and because of that like it was like okay well if if everybody's holding this one up as the pinnacle of this genre and everything else is a little bit less than like i'm only setting myself up for disappointment if i continue in this direction fair or not that's what happened so I have to catch up on a ton of these films. Never saw Hero. Have not seen House of Flying Daggers. My my exposure to Asian cinema, to be completely honest, is is really, really uh, ill-developed outside of Kurosawa, which I understand is Japanese. But a lot of these Chinese filmmakers, I haven't seen much of their work. I've never seen a Wong Kar Wai film, to be honest. Okay, wow. Oh, that, well, that's telling. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just diving into this, this is a star Wait, No, wait, hold on. Before we continue, what does that tell? Please, share. <laughs> Elucidate. 
I would I love mean, to know. For, for the guy that wouldn't let me, uh, you know, live down not seeing any Kurosawa movies, you know, there's a whole genre of films that you've been neglecting. So, I mean, hey, look, time for you to catch up, buddy. This one came out uh, <laughs> right around the time when we were in film school together, uh, you and I, uh, as we lads. And so uh, I just figured that, you know, in your artsy snobby days, you'd start to get into some Wong Kar Wai or you know, start to develop. Am I not into my artsy oil. snobby days? Uh, Are these not the artsy snobby days? Yeah. I mean, you said you wanted to make like a morning radio show podcast, and then you said you were going to call it Esoterica <laughs> Cinema. So uh, <laughs> anyone that wants to use that many syllables in their podcast title, I guess you are just balls deep <laughs> in snobbery, my friend. <laughs> Listen, Ryan, high-low is my shit, man. That's one thing that I've discovered over the last handful of years, dude. Like, you got to take the high and the low, man. Like, you pair them together, you get the best of both worlds. You get something unique and idiosyncratic and taking pieces that really don't belong together and just smash them together into something unique and interesting. This is why Game of Thrones work, dude. Like, it, it, it's, it's high-low, and, and it takes the, the, the best elements of both approaches and creates something awesome out of it. Like Zima and Grapefruit Juice. Uh, this movie was... <laughs> or like Ryan and Jason. Ryan and, <laughs> and Jason. Uh, we this movie star studded. Uh, I could tell you Tony Leung um, was in twenty forty six. He was uh, in Chung King Express. He was in a movie called Internal Affairs, which is what The Departed is based on um, by Scorsese. Oh no, it's called Infernal Affairs, sir. That one I actually have seen. Boom. That's what's up. <laughs> you okay? Well. You're not totally dumb. Did so, I see it because it, the Departed remake it remade it, and then I saw the Western version first, and then went back and checked it out afterwards? Yes, but that's besides the point. That's beside the point. Uh, and he's also in Shang Chi, um, which is the new Marvel movie coming out. You got Ji Zhang, who is in House of, who goes on to star in House of Flying Daggers. Uh, she was also in Memoirs of a Geisha. She was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. You've got the great Donnie Yen, who is Ip Man. Uh, he's also uh, Mulan, uh, I believe is Mulan's father in the new Disney uh, Mulan live action remake. There's a lot of star power in this movie. I believe it was uh, at the time the most expensive um, Chinese film or, or foreign film uh, when it was made. This movie costs a lot of money um, and, and there's you could see it on the screen. I, I would hope that you at least respected how beautiful the film was and how it was shot and... and uh, the care that was taken to shoot this sucker. The CGI in some of the uh, action films did not hold up for me. And I did not appreciate some of the, I mean, I, I kind of get torn on some wire work uh, in some of these Asian action films as well. Um, I, I Some of it just goes to the extreme. I appreciate that, um, you know, they're making beauty out of violence. And they're showing it in more of a Cirque du Soleil kind of ball ballet, if you will. But, uh, yeah, some of the wire work just seemed a little uh, gratuitous, I think, in this film in particular. Yeah, I can sign off with that. So let's go ahead and let's actually dive in here, Ryan. So when yeah, we yeah, start yeah. off with the film, we get a quick explanation that the film takes place during what I, what I guess is called the Warring States period. And this is when the seven individual territories made up what we now know as China. And this story takes place in Keen, I believe it's pronounced. And this is the territory that would uh, end up go on to win the war 
and unite the Empire. Though, I guess my understanding is that there's some controversy behind that. I don't even know enough to even broach that topic, but maybe our listeners know and want to drop us a line on Twitter at Esoterica Cinema or on the Gmail, EsotericaCinema at gmail.com and let us know. Yeah, I mean, the movie The movie literally starts off with the quote, every side has its hero. And, uh, and they're talking about basically, you know, though uh, the, the one dynasty won the war, other uh, dynasties see it a little differently maybe or have a different take on history. And uh, every side has its hero. And I just kept thinking, oh, boy confederate statues here we go like <laughs> i'm i'm knee deep in the south i deal with this shit on the daily and uh, uh i'm just wondering if maybe maybe china has some confederate statues over there as well <laughs> <laughs> i i would imagine dude i'm sure i'm sure everybody out there has their confederate statues yeah we're, metaphorically we're really not speaking. that unique when you take yep. a step back so i did think that it was pretty interesting the way that it starts off because we do get what you kind of expect from a film like this, which is the wide shot of the desert with the really nice, beautifully shot exterior. We see these horses. They're just kind of charging through. I forget if it's in slow-mo initially or not. It just seems It's like not, it would, but right? uh, it looks like the Mad Max caravan from Fury Road to me. I, I wrote that that shot in particular as they're rolling in and we keep going. And then we're like, we're in riding through with the dust and the horses and all the craziness. And it looked like... Uh, Driving with the caravan and, and Fury Road with the guy with the guitar and the flamethrower and all that. It just kind of reminisced <laughs> that to me. Yeah, no, absolutely, dude. Uh, and that's kind of what I was going to say is it's interesting the way that they juxtapose those two things because it kind of starts off with this really wide shot. And then all of a sudden we get these really quickly edited close-ups of a lot of you know the horses and the people and then these sort of Dutch angles from cool perspectives like the Mad Max vibe that you're talking about. And... It was interesting because I kind of expected that it was going to be a little bit more like that Crouching Tiger style. So right off the bat, you know, if we're jumping from wide shots to extreme close-ups, really fast editing, you know, these horses are charging through. We've got the sound effects. We've got the music. And so it set up what was ultimately a much quicker movie than I expected it to be. It was sort of lyrical in a number of respects, but it also was, I think, primarily... A set piece for the action scenes, the choreography, including the wire foo that you just spoke of, as well as the set design. You know, I think those are the three reasons that you really show up to this movie and and, and the acting. Though, again, Ryan, I have to admit, because I haven't seen any of these films that you're talking about from Ip Man to House of Flying Daggers. I knew I knew nobody from this film except Jet Li. Wow. Nobody. OK. Yeah. Well, welcome to it. So very quickly, we are introduced to our protagonist, the nameless character of Nameless. That's how he's referred to in IMDb and everywhere else, and that's what we're going to call him for the purposes of this episode. He is an accomplished swordsman. He's summoned by the King of Keen, who has recently had an assassination attempt on his life uh, by these three characters named Long Sky, Flying Snow, and Broken Sword. By the way, Ryan, these... uh. These character names sound like they'd make excellent band names, by the way. I'm pretty sure that I saw Broken Sword open for Long Sky at uh, the Greek. <laughs> it was awesome. It was a great show. Yeah. I'm all Flying in Flying Snow went south after the third album. I think we can all agree. <laughs> but uh, so Nameless presents the weapons of the assassins to the king to sort of say, hey, look, here's the evidence that I slayed these guys that tried to kill you. 
and it allows him into the king's palace and the king's room to be able to set up what is ultimately going to be a series of flashbacks, really, when it comes down to it. I thought it was interesting the way this was presented because I didn't know that it was really just, it's a guy telling a story, really, is what it is. And so he tells, you know, three or four stories, if you will. And also it reminded me, Ryan, I don't know if this came to you or if it was widely acknowledged at the time that it came out, but uh, it reminded me of a lot of Rashomon in terms of the storytelling device, just with regards to like, hey, here's what happened. And then, oh, no, but here's another character saying what really happened. And then it's like, oh, but that's not what really happened. It's a little bit of everything. And here's the real truth. Do you think about that at all? Is this the part where I'm supposed to pretend like I, uh, in, like in so many other cocktail parties where I faked my way through Curacao, like, pretending I've seen Curacao? <laughs> you caught me out of my horse shit again? I'm sorry, buddy. I, but I, I thought you would have at least known about the film. Do you not know the central conceit of that film? I mean, no. obviously not. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be a dick here. Okay. So the, so basically in Rashomon, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically two sides present a story, right? And, you know... So I think it has, if I remember correctly, it involves a woman perhaps being sexually assaulted in the jungle or something like that. And so basically, like, she comes telling her story, and then the accuser ends up coming and telling his version of events. And then there's the third and final, I forget who does it, but there's the third reveal, which is that it's, you know, elements of both of theirs, but also that both of them had embellished the nature of what happened to make themselves look better and the other look worse, right? Which... Don't have to really get too creative to understand that. We've all been there. But um, yeah, so this story, so so Hero kind of had a very similar setup where, again, it was like that same sort of thing. Like, hey, you know, the, the here, Jet Li, the nameless assassin, is, is telling the story of how he supposedly came in here. And then, you know, as we're going to discuss, the... After he tells the initial story, the king's like, nah, that's bullshit. I don't think so. Here's what I think happened. And then we get the telling of those events. And then Jet Li's like, well, you're kind of right, but also not completely because here's what ha- here's what really happened with this. So it was really similar as far as I was concerned. Okay. Yeah. I mean, way to spoil Rashomon for me. <laughs> <laughs> Can... Yeah, now now you can just put off watching it for another 40 years. You going to tell me how Walter White dies in Breaking Bad too? Is that <laughs> just, just ruin it all for me? Just ruin my whole life. Hey, for me, Jason. who says who says he died? <sighs> who says he died? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, it, it's around uh, this time when Jet Li is walking up to taking his slow stroll to the uh, emperor or the king of the mm-hmm. kingdom. Uh, that I started to realize that other cultures have so many stairs and their monuments. Uh, <laughs> is that something you ever thought about? Um, you know, I, I've traveled and, you know, I've been to, to other countries. And every time you go to any kind of anything, there's like a million stairs. Here in America, we build everything on the ground. <laughs> it's like right there. You just you go maybe 20 steps. It's right there. Dude, China, hundreds well, of you- stairs. Crazy amounts of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and here and the, in America, if if stairs would be needed, we have a little thing called elevators that we create. Yeah, we would put an escalator. Ain't no walking for us Americans. Yep. Oh, that would have brought such joy to my soul if Jet Li goes and gets on a little uh, airport-style escalator and there's, like, some elevator music. It just takes, like, <laughs> there's, like, a 30-second shot of just tracking him up the escalator to go see the king. That would have been... <laughs> 
chef's Dude, kiss. No, even even better than that would be is if they like installed one of those like elderly assistance chairs <laughs> along the side. <laughs> and he just sat there. Yep, and it took like seven buddy. and a half minutes to go up. And the, and the director was like, nah, man, I want to get in there. I want to be real. We're going to stay there the whole time. We're going to stay there for all seven and a half minutes while yep. it goes up. And there's like a smooth <laughs> jazz version of the girl from Ipanema that's playing as they're going up. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> all right. Hero 2, already written. Let's make it happen, Quentin. We're working on it. Yeah, I'm already crowdsourcing this sucker. <laughs> so Jet Li gets in the presence of the emperor, the king, or uh, if you will. I'm going to go back and forth this entire show on that. And he's surrounded <laughs> by what could only be uh, Dementors. From the Harry Potter series, um, <laughs> <laughs> these guys are way elaborately dressed. Uh, they pull yeah, out all the for stops sure. for their for their uh, get up. Yeah, no, it was definitely. And look, this is a very ornate film. There's a lot of costumes. There's a lot of set design, and you're there for those visuals. And I mean, look, <laughs> just by sheer volume of the amount of arrows that end up getting fired over the course of this film, like there's definitely an aspect of fantasy going on here, right? Like yeah, you're not supposed yeah. to take everything. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, what do they call it? You know, like the, the, the traditional magical realism genre. Like, I don't know if you've ever read a hundred years of solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or some, you know, some of those, like they don't call it urban fantasy, but yeah, magical realism. Like it definitely had elements of that. Yeah, I mean, it. it, it this is a, a real layman's uh, way of saying this, but it really felt like, I don't know if you ever played the game Dynasty Warriors uh, for PlayStation, but I felt like it was spot on Dynasty Warriors, the movie. Um, just really over the top uh, Asian fantasy stuff going on here, just like you said. And House of Flying Daggers, to me, does this better. Um, I thought that everything that was done in this film was done better. Uh, to, to better effect uh, in that film. So if you enjoyed this movie, I think you'll really enjoy the follow-up. Uh, but if you really, if this wasn't your cup of tea, I, I get that too. Yeah. Well, I did really like the way that it more or less starts off with him telling the story where nameless fights long sky and the whole thing's filmed in black and white. And I did appreciate the aesthetics of the film. I liked the way that, they decided that they were going to sort of break up the movie into chunks and assign a different color scheme to those chunks. So right off the bat, the fight between Nameless and Long Sky, for example, it's done in black and white, and I thought it was done to really cool effect. We do see some of that wire foo, but it seems like it's also a little bit more kinetic in the way that it's cut together and filmed. And over the course of the film, we're going to see these different aesthetics popped up from there. It goes to, I think, like blue becomes the dominant color in the first scene. And then it's like red. And then we end on green. I, I forget the exact progression at this point. But I did really like the fact that they highlighted those colors and that they used color to such strong effect. The film really was gorgeous to look at for more or less the entire time. The photography was awesome. And I didn't really mind the CGI. I didn't think it was that bad to be completely honest I, I didn't find it distracting for the most part now the one thing that I did kind of find distracting is there there was a little bit of some some clunky writing going on I think we we kind of have to admit that and granted you're not here for hero because of some great script but I do think that the dialogue and, and who knows how much of it was just lost in translation but it's just you know, I, for example, Ryan, I haven't, as we talked about, I haven't seen a ton of 
you know, these like kung fu films, but they almost kind of always seem to have these sort of like really sort of trite and generic kind of like summations, right? Like everybody speaks as though every line of dialogue is some proclamation about the nature of humanity instead of just people talking. And maybe that's part of the aesthetic. You're much more familiar. What do you think about that? I mean, I'm the idiot that spouts off dick and fart jokes all over this podcast. So um, I'm not the one to, to, to ask about that. I, I thought that it, you know, <laughs> seemed poetic enough to me. Uh, but I, I do I do see your point. I definitely do. It seemed like uh, they were definitely kind of beating you over the head with it a little bit. Is that what you're saying? More or less? Just kind of yeah, with the, yeah, like, like, the pros of... Now, and like I said, subtlety is not what this movie is about. But it no, was just no, like, right. I mean... Again, like everything was about like everything was a line about being a warrior or sacrificing. And it's like, but you know, normally you'd have like a couple of those, but it just felt like every single line of because there was such little dialogue. I guess that's the one thing we can acknowledge too, especially for a film that apparently, as you say, does have such star power. Nobody really talks that much. The king, not that or much. The emperor is really yeah. the only buddy that has much to say. It's it's kind of a um, almost equal part uh, parts to me, you know, visual, and then the the dialogue and the writing, and then the audio and the sound as well. Because there were some moments where uh, the audio uh, really uh, kind of carried it. The the water droplets uh, of rain into a puddle, or footsteps, um, or uh, the arrow or the staff going into the sand for the calligraphy. There were some parts where you know. Uh, everything would drop out and they would just let you focus and hear one element at a time as they were showing you. But uh, to your point, everything seemed to be cranked up to 11 on this, the visuals, uh, you know, your saturation slider bar and your editing software, jack that baby all the way up. We want our red, red, <laughs> our yellow's yellow. The dialogue, every word is poetry and, uh, and the sound design over the top. So yeah, I mean, this movie was definitely cranked to 11. Uh, I, I see your point. And, it got to be a little much, not visually, because visually I think we're kind of accustomed to being cranked to 11 these days. We've seen a lot mm -hmm. since then, um, you know, the just visually stunning films and, and uh, you know, new toys are always coming out to give us more vibrant films or more clarity or more sharpness, whatever. But um, but yeah, the 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 dialogue I'll definitely give you. And because there wasn't much, it, it did stand out like a sort. It's like I get it, you know? Yeah. Now, I did think it was effective the way that they utilized the calligraphy metaphor and how Sword and Snow are studying calligraphy to improve their sword fighting because, you know, they're both these arts that require precision and practice and creativity and grace and all of that. I did like that illusion. I did also really enjoy the next scene, which was probably one of my favorite, and that's when the Keen Army shows up to the, well, I guess it's a school, the calligraphy school. And it ends up being like the scene where they're just launching like what has to be like thousands and thousands of arrows at Nameless and the Mistress and Snow. And, you know, they're jumping all around and avoiding the arrows and kind of got like superpowers to a degree or something, or at least Snow does. And um, yeah, I loved you know, all that. that. That scene was really really well done what i really liked about the choreography of this film is it's not just related to the fight scenes the way that a lot of films are i liked the fact that there was a lot of times where the editing and the direction kind of worked in concert with one another and i thought that that was 
an effective demonstration of when this film is at its best. From there, they all survive this sort of crazy attack from the army. Nameless reveals that he's this assassin who's come to kill Snow, and he actually challenges her to a duel to avenge her fallen lover, Sky. Now, from there, here's where we get into some of the more, like, I guess you might call them melodramatic aspects of the story, because we've got Snow with Sword, and when he learns about this, that she slept with Sky, he feels betrayed, he becomes jealous, so he ends up sleeping with his pupil, which her name is Moon, and makes sure that he does so in a way that Snow can see, so then she gets upset, and... There's this really cool sequence from there where Snow ends up killing Sword because she's, you know, crazy with jealousy or whatever. Um, And then, you know, Moon ends up chasing her, right, through the forest. There's this, like, beautiful shot of some autumn winds. And then this is actually one of those scenarios where I thought the wires were effectively utilized was this sort of chase through the trees. Right. I'll agree. Yeah. And uh, and then, like I said, that's where we get the sort of like supernatural power reveal where, you know, uh, I think it's snow can control winds and stuff like that. So she ends up very quickly dispatching of moon after more or less trying not to. But because she ended up killing this man that she loved and her their pupil, um, you know, the next day when she goes to fight nameless she's weakened and distraught and she's easily defeated and then we do get that beautiful shot as well where the tree leaves all change from orange to red yeah uh you know it's it's kind of a lover love triangle thing that's going on in our first version of the story which um our nameless hero is telling to the king because the Mm -hmm. king asks how did you kill these three badasses they've been trying to off me for quite some time and uh he said, well, uh, you know, he basically he explains over the course of uh, telling his stories that we're going into now that the all these people were involved in a bit of a love triangle. I found this out. And one by one, he kind of turned them all against each other psychologically and was able to separate them and fight them one by one and take them off their game by, uh, you know, attacking them mentally, more or less, by calling them out on this love triangle shit and kind of using that against them. Uh, the first battle I want to go back and talk a little bit more about, which is uh, the battle with Sky. Um, this is where the wire work, I thought, kind of took me out of it a little bit. Uh, the sound design was at okay. its best in this battle. Um, the cinematography was cool. The floppy spear thing was a little off-putting to me. Um, yeah. Just, I don't, it just took me out of it. I don't know why. Uh, I, I can't tell you why I didn't. But it just uh, the the floppy spear thing just was a little much. Uh, that was Donnie Yen that was playing uh, Sky. That's uh, Ip Man. Um, if you want to ever go back and watch some of these films, but uh, yeah, it, it was you know he's a stud and the the whole scene was really cool. I love love love. I got to find out the name of uh, those Asian lap guitars. They used them to. I love those things. Yeah, they used them in Kung Fu Hustle, too. Those two assassins that were, like, throwing the... Yes, they did. I love that scene as well. Yeah, yeah where they just yeah, right. launch the sonic arrows or whatever it is at them. Like, that was great. Yeah, and this guy, there, there was uh, a musician that was playing it in the temple or wherever they were playing chess uh, or whatever it was, which, by the way, that was pretty cool just in and of itself. It, like, all the tables were wet, and they were, like, lifting the Othello pieces out with, like, 
Yeah, uh, little shuffleboard really tang nice. looking things. I don't know, man. The whole thing was sick. No, and, it looks uh, great. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, the 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 wire work and the floppy spear stuff. I I don't know. Maybe I'm just a uh, uh, a troglodyte, but that just wasn't for me. No, I get it. I think it's just because like it's one of those things. You're like spears aren't floppy, dude. If they were floppy, they wouldn't be effective spears. So what the hell's going on here? Yeah, I don't know what that was all about. Yeah, so I get you, man. When we jump back to the present, Nameless is talking to the king. The emperor doesn't believe him because he he knows Sword personally from past interactions. And he knows that Sword is a man of honor. He does not believe that Sword would sleep with his pupil and dishonor Snow like that. And he ends up kind of becoming a little suspicious and believes that the two of them sacrificed themselves to allow him being the king to let his guard down so that Nameless could show up for a new assassination attempt. And from there, the king then offers up his own version of events, kind of like, yeah, buddy, I'm on to you. I know what's going on here. That's not what really happened. Let me tell you what really happened to you because I know what's up because I'm the king. From there, we get the switch in the color scheme. I believe it goes to blue and we get a lot of uh, predominant blue set design really in your face there with that but it looks it looks very nice nameless describes the fact that he's learned a technique that's going to allow him to kill the emperor without fail as long as he can get within 10 paces of him and from there we go back and we see sword and snow on a mountaintop and they both want to sacrifice themselves in this fight with nameless but they both love each other and so snow ends up stabbing sword but not Enough to kill him, just enough to incapacitate him so that he doesn't end up sacrificing himself. She rides off to fight. Then they start, and Nameless doesn't want to kill her, but she says that she's willing to die willingly for the cause. And this is another thing where it kind of, you know, felt very big and over the top, sort of Mad Maxi, as you alluded to earlier where the fight starts and it's like the big pit with all of like the soldiers that are all ornately dressed and they're all standing around in like this big circle and like getting ready for this like gladiatorial combat style fight. So from there again, nameless easily kills her. She's in this weakened state. She just killed sword, etc., etc. And so later sword wants to avenge her death and we get, so, Ryan, I'd be interested to know what you thought about this. What did you think of the fight between Snow and Nameless that took place on the water, where they're basically, like, walking on water and flying around on water and stuff? Uh, you mean Sword and Nameless? Um, yeah, that... Uh, yeah. They, where they, they, they fought with their heart, and um, apparently that scene was a real pain in the ass to shoot because they had to, they only had a couple hours each day to shoot that, um, where the lake was so still to be a mirror. Um, and yeah, you know, the whole, the, the, the first fight with sky where the, uh, guitar player was playing and they, the both fighters were, Imagining they were fighting with in their uh, imagination and trying to stay one step ahead of the other fighter and see how they could beat the other uh, their opponent. So Nameless and Sky mm-hmm. were just like sitting there in silence and just like thinking about how this was going to play out so they could get their strategy right. And once Nameless got to 
the victory in his mind, he knew how he could beat his opponent, and he just charged in and did it. Uh, then we get to this fight that you're describing, and they're fighting not with their minds but in their hearts. But their hearts were not in it. And so, um, you know, kind of neither was mine. It, it just seemed like a, I mean, it was a beautiful scene. It was epic. I get that they were honor bound to fight uh, this way, I guess. Um, but to defend uh, Snow's honor, whatever it was. But I don't know, man. It just it seemed kind of a little extraneous to me. And, uh, um, you know, this is where I, I kind of like, maybe looked at my phone a little bit or was kind of being pulled out of the film. Um, also, the uh, the scene going back uh, to our second fight uh, where Nameless is, uh, we're, we're in our red scene, if you will, and the, he's in the calligraphy school. Um, the, specifically, when I was talking about earlier, the CGI not holding up, it was really with the arrows uh, that were flying through the sky. And uh, for whatever mm. reason, that just all kind of looked a little cheesy for me i don't know man it just seemed like uh movies around this time uh, in 2002 2004 2005 you start going back into this era and uh cgi was not very uh kind to us back then um you get like the cold eyes of people from like polar express was around this era um uh, Robert Zemeckis's Beowulf came out around this time. I'm just thinking of like digital animation, and uh, it was just kind of cheesy and not uh, not very rendered out um, the way that we're used to seeing it now. And I would even go back to the 90s and I would watch Toy Story or Toy Story 2 or Bugs Life, you know, some of these early Pixar films uh, way before I'd uh, get into something like Polar Express or something like that. So uh, I just think that it's just a rough time for maybe technology and CGI, but some of that stuff just didn't hold hold up for me. Um, the calligraphy scene where uh, Broken Sword was painting the uh, word sword in the 20th way you could say it, apparently, um, with the mop and the red paint, uh, and he was just like, all up in it and the arrows were flying in and it was this intense scene. Uh, I gotta say, man, like as, as much as he was mopping that paint on that calligraphy, uh, uh, big wall art that he was making, uh, I kind of, ex- <laughs> I kind of expected a little more from it when they showed what it was. I was like, man, that was a lot of work for just, <laughs> he was breaking a sweat mopping that paint <laughs> there and then they unveiled it. And I was like, Oh, just, just that. Okay. Well, you know, whatever. And he's like, I'm going to study this. I'm going to learn how he fights. I'm like, bro, there's there's not a lot there for you to work with. I thought he was going to give you some more. But. <laughs> That's funny, dude. You know what? The, there's also one thing I want to ask you, by the way. So what did you think of Jet Li's performance in this film? I I love Jet Li. Uh, he's, he's a stone-cold killer with a heart of gold. He's, uh, you know... He, <laughs> He's a, a okay, I'll, tell you what. I'll give I'll give you I'll give you half of that. He does have a heart of gold. This is the problem I have with like the couple films I've seen him. He is not a stone cold killer, dude. Like he <laughs> seems like the nicest man in the world. Like he looks like one of those guys that would like take in puppies and kittens from a shelter while, you know, raising six kids that weren't his and they're all crying over videos of soldiers returning home, like which they should because those are wonderful and, and, and emotion filled. But like he's 
he doesn't he, doesn't he like always play an assassin? I mean, he's a martial artist, so that's kind of his shtick, I guess. I get. I don't know. Yeah, they just had to find <laughs> like creative and adorable ways to get him to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, what's funny. I, I just thought of it right now. Is I wonder if this is kind of like I wonder if like in 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 Chinese cinema, if maybe like their action heroes are just nicer. Than they are here because I also just remembered like Jackie Chan. It's the same thing, man. Jackie Chan's like the nicest guy in the world. He seems like 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 your uncle that you would just br- like he would bring a <laughs> smile to your face every time you went to Thanksgiving, right? And like he just he would always have the perfect thing to say, and he'd be very compassionate and gentle. And so like it's just funny that like this is the guy you're telling me I need to watch like beat the utter crap out of people for ninety minutes at a time. It's just I funny. Mean- yeah, I, you, maybe Jet Li was raising those six kids that weren't his because he had to kill their real father. That was the whole thing. And he was just like doing the honorable. <laughs> That's the other side of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. What if he's like totally like one of his characters and he does actually have this like tragic backstory where, you know, as a young guy, he was, you know, much more hot headed and he got himself in a situation and killed a man that he knew didn't deserve it. And so he literally spends every single day the rest of his life trying to atone for that one mistake and do good upon the world. Isn't that Unchained uh, by Luke Bas- uh, then the Luke Besson film, Unchained, where he wears the collar and then uh, they like keep him like a dog and then finally they unleash him and take him off the collar and then he goes just ape shit and kills everybody? Have you ever seen that movie? I haven't, but I certainly don't need to anymore. Thanks, bud. I, I got to look it up and uh, make sure I got the name right. But I think it's called Unchained. It's actually pretty solid. I actually, uh, I remember liking that film. <laughs> I'm going to go back and watch it now, and it's going to be shit. But whatever. <laughs> Sometimes dare, memories are best how left dare you spoil a film on? How dare you spoil a film on our program where we do nothing but spoil films? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you already wrecked Breaking Bad for me and, uh, and Rashomon, so. No, now we're we're getting there. We're almost <laughs> even. You, do you, do you wonder like I, I wonder if uh, if Asian Jaws is like with a golden retriever like their like their uh, <laughs> their monster movies are like all cuddly and like oh no <laughs> and it's like a little golden retriever he's all frothing at the mouth but he's like terrifying. <laughs> I mean, if you well, don't I like this, the- I, you know, if you don't like martial art films like this you know, with these uh, adorable killers, uh, you're going to really hate Canadian action films where they're just apologizing all the time. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get to those in a few weeks, I guess. <laughs> sorry. Like, oh, sorry that I destroyed the building, eh? Just uh, send so me a bill sorry. for the uh, repairs, eh? <laughs> I was just trying to do the right thing. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I think uh, out of that, Jason, to your point, maybe uh, the only thing I could derive out of that is that martial arts are about balance and peace and tranquility and like knowing when to unleash those uh, actions and, and, and traumatic violence, but being focused with it and harnessing mm. it, harnessing that power. So uh, maybe what you're mistaking for, you know, I mean, he is a cuddly guy. He's got some very pinchable cheeks, let's be honest. But uh you know, look at that, put them, you know, one of those type deals. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe, you know, you talk about Jackie Chan and, and, and Jet Li and some of these martial artists that are, you know, have become popular. Um, Bruce Lee, I think going back, had a little more look of intensity uh, just in his face. Yeah, uh, for he sure. Had harder, harder edges, maybe a um, you know, more chiseled jaw jawline. Um, so maybe, you know, he comes off a little more like an action hero in America. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's just about the peace and, and tranquility and balance and, uh, and the focus and knowing when to unleash the dragon. <laughs> That's all I got, man. That I'm just sense, bullshitting. Man. <laughs> That's all no, I got. Dude, that makes absolute sense. <laughs> When we come back to the present, Nameless actually confirms that he has developed a technique that will allow him to kill any man he comes within 10 paces of. And he also confirms that he developed a technique where he can pierce the body while avoiding the vital organs so that the person doesn't get killed, they just get incapacitated. So this is sort of going to set up the final sequence here. We go to the sort of final truth of the matter regarding what happened and we switch to this green color scheme and uh, it's funny because it actually it kind of goes a little bit inception here because we get like a flashback within a flashback here and we listen to snow and sword or rather watch them uh, talk about this incident where the two of them were going to assassinate the king and they mow through these dozens of soldiers. It's this very ornately decorated palace with a lot of sort of green flowing fabrics. And eventually they come upon the king and sword faces him in a one-on-one -on -one duel. By the way, Ryan, I did think the visuals of the sheets fluttering was, was really nice. It's kind of something simple where it's like, oh, it didn't even really cost him a whole lot. But just adding to the sort of... Because it's not like a uh, traditional one-on-one, mono-on-mono duel. It's almost like a lot of the film. It's more of like a dance, like a ballet with them sort of, you know, coming in and out of frame and disappearing behind these sort of fabrics with these close-ups and a lot of shots like that. So Sword has an opportunity to kill the king, but he can't bring himself to do so. And he actually ends up revealing that despite whatever issues it is he has with the emperor that he does believe in his plight to unify China. And this ends up enraging snow. And it's kind of interesting where she and nameless strike sword to incapacitate him. And then they proceed to the duel where nameless like fake kills snow kind of with that technique that I just mentioned right there. And that basically sets up, Nameless telling the king, we, we go back and Nameless is telling the king of his belief that, you know, sword believed in the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. And then the king kind of tears up and says how he appreciates sword and Nameless's understanding of his vision and purpose. And then, you know, the army like rushes in. It's that like last minute. And basically the king says that he's going to sort of leave his fate up to Nameless. If he decides to kill him, then he kills him and... If he understands their plight and he doesn't, then so be it. And uh, Nameless goes to move as though he is going to kill him, but the sword ends up being reversed the other way. The hilt is jabbing into the king instead of the blade, and he decides ultimately not to kill him. That's the other thing about this movie, Ryan. Like, there are so many times where people almost kill people. <laughs> why are you all pursuing each other so frequently and so often if every single time you're going to have an opportunity to kill him you're like eh let's not actually he's yeah. not such a bad guy I don't know why we're doing this in the first place I got a little carried away sorry about that my 
<laughs> like 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 so often dude like it was just yeah. again one or once or twice was fine but like i think that might have been a little bit of a screenwriting crutch there well and then too like there's entire stories told about killing people and then we go back and find out well i was gonna but i decided against it <laughs> that's like what really happened was yeah exactly and then the one person that actually does get killed is our protagonist nameless and, you know, he ends up uh, not, like I mentioned, he ends up not killing the emperor and he's going to go leave. But then the army's basically like, hey, dude, you can't just let that guy go for nothing. Like, we got to make fucking a, Dementors, man. The Dementors <laughs> had him killed. <laughs> yeah, you know, because they're like, look, you know, you're not going to just politely ask the people of China to unify. And they're going to be like, sure, OK, right? Like, you got to dominate and show force and power and all of these things so you know if word gets out that this dude tried to kill you and you just kind of let him saunter out of here scot-free not going to be a good look for you and so he's like you're right you're right yeah go ahead and kill him so and then we get that shot you know at the end with like all of the again like there's nobody fires like apparently one arrow everybody's got these like giant like gatling bows or something <laughs> where everybody just fires off like 16 arrows a second it's this it's movie's cranked man arrows crank to 11 <laughs> let's do it <laughs> And then, uh, you know, we get the 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 character outline of Nameless, you know, among the huge swaths of, of arrows in the wall. But then we also do see that the Emperor has given Nameless a hero's funeral. And there's a big procession at the end with him being carried off. So I guess happy ending? Confederate statues. Yep. I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Shrug question mark. I get it. I I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um. So again, you know, uh, this was not a film that I I disliked by any stretch, Ryan. Like it was a it was a good film. I did enjoy it. I just didn't love it. Like it wasn't a five star film for me. So before we get into our formal ratings, let's go ahead and slap some adjectives as we do on these films. Ryan, hit me up with your three adjectives for hero. Uh, well, the first one's pretty obvious. I gave it a big old vibrant, because, uh, geez, this movie will punch you in the mouth with some color. Um, saturated as hell, and it's just a really beautiful film. Um, and I thought the use of color, too, was deliberate. Um, maybe sometimes just a little over the top, but ultimately... You, they switched it up enough, and, uh, you know, the colors had meanings, too. I guess certain colors were the lies that were being told, and, and you know, we get into actual real uh, color temperatures for the truths that are being told. So uh, everything that's overly saturated is uh, a form of a exaggeration or a story that's being told. So um, on that level, you know, uh, playable lie. I, I, lo I love the... The vibrant colors and, and all of that. I also um, thought it was encapsulating. I thought, you know, as much as you said that it was over dramatic, and uh, I get it, the the dialogue and all of that. I was encapsulated. This whole film, I was glued to my screen. I thought, uh, you know, I just really love the characters. I love the acting, uh, the action sequences, minus the rubber spear. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, pretty engaging. I was all in for it and heartfelt. 
Um, I remember this being an action film, and it was more of a romance or a Shakespearean tale, I guess. I don't know. A tragedy? Um, hard to really place a genre on this, but action certainly is in the way in the background on this one. Um, I, so I, it was very heartfelt. It was, uh, and maybe that was, you know, our, our golden retriever, uh, Jet Li, you know, uh, maybe it was Kung Fu Panda that, <laughs> that made it, <laughs> made it very heartfelt for me. So vibrant, encapsulating and heartfelt were my three adjectives. Jason. That's pretty awesome, man. I'm trying to wrap my head around a film that Ryan Siebold responds positively to that he describes as heartfelt. You're getting so soft in your old age there, buddy. (laughs) Just from the waist down. (laughs) (laughs) The first one may not necessarily sound like a, a traditional Jason Peters adjective. I went with pretty Not a word I really use that often to describe much of everything, but I thought that it was appropriate in this film. It's a very lovely film to look at. It's, as you say, vibrant. I love color, so the emphasis on that worked for me. Everybody was pretty, right? The the actors, the actresses, the set designs, everything. So, very pretty movie. It was also very elegant in the way that it was presented, whether or not that's more traditional of the genre than maybe I'm familiar with. It does have that sort of nature to it where it's weird because you don't want to say this film took its time. It definitely didn't take its time. And that's actually my other criticism that I'll get to here in a minute. But the way that it was pieced together, um, you can tell that you can tell that a lot of care and love went into it. And I guess that's probably where the elegance comes from. But also on that note, and, and again, this is one of our uh, multi-syllabic adjectives. Too quick for its own good. And uh, that's not something that I usually would levy as a criticism toward a lot of films. I think that there's like way too many films that are unnecessarily long and just take up your time. And, you know, I mean, like when we watched A Cure for Wellness, it was like, dude, you could have cut an hour from this damn movie and it'd still be the same movie. Like, why are you wasting my time? But I kind of thought this was on the other end. Like, it was it was so quick, and it just did come at you so relentlessly. But at the same time, it's, its spirit, if you will, like, as a film, didn't really match that. Like, it was almost as though it was the soul of, like, a Kurosawa film, but it was presented through a hyperkinetic, well, I guess, like, a Quentin Tarantino veneer, right? So this was a movie that I thought would have benefited from slowing itself down a little bit, letting us know a little bit more about the characters initially to set up what was going to happen because I feel like they just breakneck into it and then they kind of fill you in along the way and they're like, oh, by the way, these guys are together and this happened and this tragic thing happened, so you should probably feel bad for them. And it's like, well, it probably would have been better to know that up front ahead of time to be able to allow those moments to really resonate. But those are my three adjectives. Pretty elegant too quick for its own good i may have said that too quickly for my own good <laughs> uh what, did, what right. did you rate this movie so ryan my official star rating for hero going to slap this with three and three quarters out of five stars okay okay yeah i yeah. mean uh i gave this a good solid b right down the middle b okay Eighty-five percent, mm-hmm. um, four stars. You know, yeah, I thought uh, 
it was a good film. I have, you know, aside from what I already said, I, I have zero complaints about this film. I thought it was a solid film. I thought technically it was a great achievement with the cinematography and the sound design and all that. Um, you know, it was good. It was a good, good film. I have seen better films. I've seen a lot worse films. I enjoyed the film. That's for sure. Yeah. It's just it funny was... because normally when you say you like something in that high of a pitch, you really don't. Yeah. It was good. I liked it. I liked it. It was good. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I'm going Larry David on you. So, you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good film. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> um, you know... Uh, I, the my last takeaway is that uh, this is something that I have noticed over uh, the last several films. You know, as we've gotten into this podcast, um, you know, you, you get into foreign territory, whether it be uh, you know military planning in France, um, in Paths of Glory, or uh, this film. I don't know. You get into to some foreign films. Um, it seems like, dude, other cultures have such grandiose like temples and monuments and, you know, uh, the rooms, everything is just so much larger uh, overseas. I feel like America, everything's, you know, small and segmented and small rooms. Um, Every time I see a a foreign film like this, I'm just reminded at how epic and grand scale. And then so I I challenged myself and I started thinking, you know, uh, what do we have in America that we would, uh, you know, kind of compare to that, to that grand scale. And the only thing I could think of off the top of my head uh, was our football stadiums. Like, those are our, our temples. Mm. That's where all of our stairs are. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, you know, since we're recording this live and nothing we do is pre-recorded, uh, and this will be coming out, uh, you know, uh, what is this now, uh, November? I, I think this it's November now where we're wrapping up 2020. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Jacksonville Jaguars for making the Super Bowl. Uh, they're doing a great job this year. Uh, <laughs> since we're recording this live and I know that they made the Super Bowl, I just wanted to say, wow, you know, Gardner Minshew really pulled it out of his hat this season. Um, no one saw this coming. 2020 uh, has been a wild ride. Jaguars going to the Super Bowl. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, I think there's... <laughs> I'm putting it on I'm putting it on tape, you know, so whenever I listen to this in the future, I'll uh, have a good laugh. <laughs> Ryan, have we, have we not really talked about the fact that you're a Jaguars fan and I'm a Titans fan? This uh, is no, never going to work, bro. Yeah, I think... It, we, we screwed it, ourselves, man. We're like 12 episodes deep now, way too entrenched to turn back, but... I mean, this, that's that's basically that's basically as if one of us was a Bears fan and the others was a Packers fan. Like for those that don't know, Titans and Jaguars hatred runs deep. Yeah, I think it really stems back to that wonderful 14 and three season. You remember that one, Ryan, right? Where you were undefeated in the league except to one team that you lost to. It wasn't once. And and no, no, it wasn't twice. It was three fucking times, bro. <laughs> three times. And we got to the yeah. Super Bowl and you didn't. Ba-bam. Yep. Uh, cool. <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh. On that note, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And we will be back to discuss Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Stick around. Oh, yeah. 
Aberrant Literature is proud to present the next great anthology in modern fiction, Aberrant Tales, edited by Jason Peters. Most anthologies are content to sit in one lane, offering bland, repetitive versions of the same types of stories. Aberrant Tales is different. Aberrant Literature turns the anthology on its head by blending together multiple genres within the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. With Aberrant Tales, no two stories are ever the same. In one story, you're being transported to a faraway future where corporations allow access to visions of your future, while in the next, you're taken to a distant land of dark fantasy featuring errant knights and grotesque monstrosities. Aberrant Tales is a unique collection of short fiction for those who are tired of the same old thing. It's unapologetically creative, wonderfully imaginative, and embraces its own unique spirit. Find Aberrant Tales today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature. Is this Sweetback's body? Run, Sweetback! They told me to pick up Sweetback. You're Sweetback, aren't you? You saved a plan. They were planning to pick in the butt. That's why the man's down on you. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Ryan, this next film, certainly something. <laughs> Why oh, don't you boy. go ahead and sell it to the listeners for us? This is Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song with five S's? <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, from 1971. First off, uh, to our listeners, I want to throw out a quick apology on behalf of Jason and I for this movie being a little difficult to find. Uh, he and I <laughs> thought this was going to be a little easier to watch, but uh, you had to jump through some hoops to get to this one. Uh, whatever. So, so <laughs> Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. <laughs> well, and not from- only was it difficult to watch in terms of finding it, but uh, a little difficult to watch in terms of the content at times as well. We'll get into that. This was a rough 97 minutes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So real quick, um, I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes. They got a synopsis that goes sweet. Sweetbacks uh, is a sweet. Sweetback is a black orphan who, having grown up in a brothel, now works there as a part of a sex show. When the police need a patsy for a murder in the black community, Sweetback's employer gives him uh, up to two white cops whom Sweetback ends up killing. Uh, suddenly, now he's a target of a massive manhunt. He then decides to flee to Mexico, 
because, yeah, as he makes his way there, he is captured by and escapes from both the cops and a chapter of the Hells Angels for good measure. Um, look, Jason, I appreciate this movie. I really do. For what it is, um, for what it created, uh, this is kind of like, you know, uh, El Mariachi for a whole genre of films. Like, this jump-started everything. Uh, in all fairness, Shaft did come out a few years, a few months after this movie, also in 1971. I would argue Shaft is a well-constructed story, a better-made movie. Um, but, you know, hey, look, this uh, this did touch on some very timely topics. Things we're still dealing with to this very day. So I was watching this movie and I was like, oh, shit, we haven't learned a thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, it's definitely it's one of those movies where you definitely have to take its place in history into account when you're judging it, when you're watching it. It's not a movie that a lot of people are going to relate to these days or even in certain respects think is OK. I mean, we'll talk about the opening scene here very quickly and, and some of the troubles there. I mean, th there are aspects of this film that would get certain people arrested. If, if they tried to do that today. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there yeah, is so statute, arguably statutory rape in this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. We shouldn't be <laughs> laughing at that, but it's, 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 it's like almost true. And it's just, it, it's, it, it's one of those things you laugh at because it's just so shocking relative to where we are today that they're going to like, I assume we're talking about the, 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 the same thing, the opening scene with the kid where, you know, he's, clearly you know 13 14 years old something like that and ends up banging a prostitute like on camera and he's very clearly uncomfortable with this entire thing i mean that poor kid is yeah like, you can just sort of see him looking up at because i didn't i think you said if i remember correctly that was that was mario van people's right melvin's son that's his son his dad is directing Why would you him. talk about uncomfortable Dude, why would you do that to your kid? Is is that like one of those things where like you 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 go and send your kid to like the 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 Mexican brothel when they turn thirteen so that you know the 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 ladies over there can make them a man? Like, why would you do that Maybe. to your kid? That's so horribly uh, uncomfortable. Budgetary concerns for the same reason you watched. <laughs> this is the same Screw reason the kid. you watched. We've got a, a movie to make, and I've only got so much money here. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> this is the same reason you watched a dubbed version of El Mariachi uh, several weeks ago. <laughs> there was a dollar to be saved, Ryan. There was a whole dollar to be saved. Yeah, well, you know that's the way he was looking at it too. Get in there, son. Take one for the team. She won't hurt you. Yeah. By the way, uh, did you notice the opening placard, the Xenon Pictures title card looked exactly like the Troublemaker Studios title card, just blue instead of orange? Little little Whoa. Rodriguez connection there. I did not it, notice that. It, That's it's bananas. like the exact same, dude. Yeah, it's crazy. You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know. I mean, so confession time. Uh, I just watched this movie today. Um, okay. you know, sometimes life gets the best of us and yeah, I've had absolutely. a pretty busy schedule watching all these movies, um, has been a blessing and a curse sometimes. And it's a hard to keep up with and do the podcast and edit and all this stuff that we do, yeah. um, for our, our dear four listeners. So, um, <laughs> you four it, better be happy. <laughs> all four of you, mom. Uh, so <laughs> I took this for you, mom. Uh, so a little bit of history on this Love movie. Love you, wifey. That I, Thanks I, for listening. 
<laughs> a little bit of history on this movie that I was able to dig up. So uh, this is uh, known as uh, the beginning of the black exploitation movement. I hate that word, but it it is what it yeah. is, and it's a genre yeah, of films. What they call it. Yep. So yep, this is the beginning of that. Shaft came out right after this was, believe it or not, uh, really embraced by the Black Panther Party, and apparently it was known as being required viewing by all members wow. Did to show the struggle that um, African Americans were dealing with from law enforcement and what sure. you know you're up against if you join the Black Panther movement. It was made uh, for five hundred thousand uh, dollars, totaled about fifteen million uh, gross. Wow. So it was deemed a box office success. This movie, yeah, I'd say, is now the second movie I've watched in a couple weeks at a four three ratio, which is odd because um, they had widescreen stuff back then. So I guess he just filmed it, you know, on those kinds of cameras with a small little gate. The gate of the camera, the film camera, was very dirty all the time. There were constant hairs <laughs> and dust and things. Yeah. That was kind of bothersome for me. I don't know if you sure. noticed that. Uh, oh, yeah. And last, I'll just go ahead and throw this out there. Uh, he was running short on funds, Mel, old, old Melvin Van Peebles. So he went to his homie to help him finish the the movie. Uh, who coughed up the extra 50 grand he needed? Bill Cosby, because of course he did. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, you know what? Back then, that money wasn't dirty, man. Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, but you didn't know it was dirty. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, is it going to be the rape in the picture? Because if I'm going <laughs> to give you the money, then I need the rape in the picture. It's like, oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that was fantastic. Holy shit. I didn't know you could do Bill Cosby. That's amazing. I mean... We yeah, we have to do, just gotta. You have to use that for a sketch now, dude. We have we absolutely <laughs> have to create a sketch around Bill Cosby, and you are going to do that you're voice, welcome. listeners. You're, mark this episode. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. Bill Cosby <laughs> sketch featuring Ryan Siebel. Check yeah. it out. Lots of people were coming in this movie. So oh hey <laughs> Let's just sit here and make stupid noises the entire time so we can chase away yeah, those why not? listeners. So why not, we got to start chipping away at this. Why don't you start us off, Jason? Sure. So before we begin as a film, uh, it starts off with this really sort of weird scene where the family's watching him eat and there's some like weird sonic music in the background. But I, I just wanted to bring up the sort of like freeze frame with the quotes that kicks things off. Uh, it's it's just a beautiful juxtaposition of words and poetry. The first quote that comes up, it's a proverb. Proverb goes, <clears throat> Sire, these lines are not an homage to brutality that the artist has invented, but a hymn from the mouth of reality. Second quote. This film is dedicated to all the brothers and sisters who had enough of the man. <laughs> and I just love that, dude. I just love that so much, dude. Like, it's not even who have had enough of the man. It's just who had enough of the man, man. Just like, bam, right there. That's what's up. On, and also, honestly, right, <laughs> go ahead. I, I was just thinking that's a good metaphor for what our listeners must be dealing with when they hear you and I talk. You know, your you, <laughs> fancy pants author prose that you give them, and then I jump in. But the me, the me. And you're like, oh, Jesus. Well, how did I, if I could team up with this jack wagon? Yeah, man. And I love that the, uh, I don't know if you noticed in the credits uh, that this movie stars, quote, the black community. 
so much, dude. I did. <laughs> I actually did notice the black that community, and it's just like, oh man, dude, this is such like a just this is indie film before such a thing existed, man. So yeah, so after those quotes, man, we get this sort of like really awkward scene that you and I were talking about where 14-year-old Mario Van Peebles is banging a prosty and just looking so, so super uncomfortable. And she's, and for what it's worth, the actress is doing her best to act like she's really into it. You know, she's like, oh my God, ah. she's like flailing all over the place while this kid's just like, can I stop doing this, dad? <laughs> I want my waffles. Um, so, you know, like that was, and then, but then we're at least, and it goes on for what, two minutes, two or two or three long ass minutes. And then finally What's that? we get that. The child the, rape? The, the, yes. <laughs> yes. It goes through the whole opening credits, like the, all the titles. <laughs> they announced the, the, everybody, the key grip, the best boy, all of that. While he's like humping, then freeze frame credits, then humping, then freeze frame credits. It's the most awkward shit. I could not yeah. believe I was like, but it, I mean, it lets you know the deal, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. By the way, you watched this by yourself, right? I did. Yeah. Same uh, quick, here. Can you imagine if you absolutely, if you actually had thrown this off with, with anybody, friend, wife, anyone else in the room, ooh. just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Please don't think ill of me. I'm not, I'm not a child predator. I promise you. I didn't know this was in this. This is brand new to me. <laughs> Pro tip to anybody who uh, who has not watched this film but intends to. After our review, I'm assuming you'll never want to. Um, <laughs> but if you do, uh, don't watch this with anybody. Specifically not any family members or people you intend to talk to again. Make sure they're anybody like Anybody that you need to maintain a level of respect with moving forward, don't invite that person over. Watch it on an airplane. You'll get extra room, extra leg room. Someone will request to be moved to another seat. <laughs> Guaranteed. Watch it on an airplane. Yeah. So, but, you know, eventually we're able to move on from that. We get the cut where he's still, you know, banging the chick, but now he's an old man. Or not an old man, but he's at least, you know, a 20-something-year-old man. Um, and uh, he leaves this this bedroom and he goes into, like, what looks to be a sort of living room. And we very quickly see, like, okay, this is not going to have a ton of production value. It w it wasn't as bad in later scenes as it was right there. But, I mean, usually, you know, indie productions, when they do night sequences, I mean, obviously, no one ever has enough lights when they do those things. And so it, it was a little, you know, dark and snowy in the living room, if you will. But uh, beyond that, it was just I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on because it's like, there's this weird stripper or something and they're playing like some grown up version of duck, duck goose. And then a pimp walks out and then they, and then he does this weird dance with her. And then all of a sudden like a male stripper comes out or a transsexual and like, you're not exactly sure what's going on. Now these cops show up, they're asking a bunch of questions and they're looking for some guy to bring down to appease the boss. Then we get like the fairy godmother and it turns out to be like a dude and he brings out sweet, who like bangs this chick right in front of all these people. So I guess, you know, based on your description, obviously we now know it's a sex show. I didn't know what was going on for a really I long didn't time, dude. Yeah. For 97 minutes, I did not know what was going on. This movie is so <laughs> jarring and all over the map. This movie is a messy ball of yarn that you cannot find the end to. It's just a wad <laughs> of shit. Um, I understand that it's, you know, stuff we needed to, for representation and all of that. Uh, I just think that representation was done better. Um, 
in in a lot of ways, it was done better just a few years earlier uh, with a movie called In the Heat of the Night, uh, which I don't know if you've seen with Sidney Poitier as a black detective in the South. And um, that was in 1966, 1967, something like that. So mm-hmm. even deeper, uh, further back into the civil rights movement. And um, yeah, I, I thought, uh, you know, that's a great film. We maybe should put that on the list, too, if you haven't seen it. It's it's uh, definitely worth seeing. But uh, yeah, this was just uh, an editing nightmare more than anything else. It was so I like the quick edits. That was uh, supposedly unprecedented and and new to Hollywood. The quick, fast paced cuts and editing. A lot of the things we huh. see now can be thrown back to movies like this. Again, I, I realize its place in history for all of us, but as a film, uh, taking it out of all of its context and just looking at it under a microscope for what it is, uh, it was very jarring. It was hard to follow. Um, new characters were thrown in and out randomly. Uh, just like they'll introduce you to somebody and you'll never see him again, or maybe you won't see him again for 47 minutes. And then they'll bring him back for just like a quick flash and then you're gone again. Just a lot of quick cuts. I don't know. It was it was a hard one. And the sex stuff was right in there with it, taking it back again to what you were talking about in the scene. Um, every sex scene in this movie was in front of a circle of people. Yeah. And it was very weird. Totally. Uh, uh, I, I was like, is that just how people had sex back then? Like, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Uh, my mom and dad had sex back then. Like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, that no, maybe, our, maybe our parents all sat in a circle and watched each other. It's just it's like unspoken thing of a previous generation. They're like, ah, stupid kids don't remember a good old circle bang. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe all those eye rolls I got when I used to tell my mom, I'm bored. And you're like, well, when I was a kid. <laughs> we would find like, yeah, of course people. you are. You're a little pussy who's not willing to bang publicly. Yeah. I don't know. Don't you have a fairy godmother friend with sparkles to like bring you in and like <laughs> crowded room full of people watching? I don't know. That's fantastic. How old are you now? 10? You should be having sex with prostitutes by now. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I did think it was also funny. So, you know, from there, the cops end up, they take sweet in the car and we get like what you're talking about. A lot of that really quick editing with like the sort of neon signs and landmarks and a lot of it's done at night where they have no business shooting without any lights. Like it was like someone grabbed a flashlight. They're like, no, nah, it's cool. Fuck key lights. I got this little thing. I'll just sort of, you know, uh, uh, blast it off the side of this car that's on the freeway and you can hang the camera out and that'll, that'll photograph just fine. <laughs> it's like, no bro, it really doesn't no, do. dude. But yeah. And they're like, well, if it doesn't, we'll just throw a, you know, weird color filter on it. And randomly have a psychedelic oil pump that we just kind of cut in for no reason. There was a lot of <laughs> right. weird little stuff they did like that, where it's like, and this feels like one of these things where there was like, like, like LSD laced with cocaine that was going around the editing room and it just had some funky after effects. And uh, yeah, um, this movie had a very Fritz the cat vibe. Did you get any it Fritz did, the dude. cat vibes? 100% man. Like, it's interesting because you've got, especially a lot of the sort of, I guess you could call it social upheaval elements, uh, but yep. yeah, sort of a main character that kind of just bounces around from here to there, not necessarily with any direction, just kind of finds himself places and it finds himself in the middle of a lot of revolutionary activity. And then the same way that Fritz the Cat, you know, ended up going to the desert and that whole weird thing with the 
heroin addicted rabbit that's the biker at the end that was very similar and reminiscent to the end of sweetback where he's going through the mexican desert yeah that's funny yep. and i didn't really consider that before i i had considered that there was certain elements but just looking at it a little bit closer right now i guess they were closer than i realized that's interesting yeah i mean and they pretty much came out within a year of each other so you know it's all right in the same same time frame so they were just you know dealing with some a lot of the same issues in a lot of the same ways i guess now, I did think it was great that they were able to get Earth, Wind, and Fire for the soundtrack, but it would have been nice if they could have afforded more than one song. That would have been nice. I don't know if <laughs> well, you noticed I got one, that I got one, one more goddamn song over and over and over and over. <laughs> and like the first 15, 20 minutes of this song, even, I was still into it, but I'm like, dude, it's been 50 minutes you are milking this damn song bro like get some local talent and switch it up here dude come on yep (laughs) bill cosby didn't want to pay for that um yeah i actually uh i i got i got more to that story because apparently from what i've uh read online earth wind and fire were never even paid for that one song so (laughs) oh really uh, they couldn't even oh, afford oh, Melvin Stifta, man. <laughs> oh, Melvin gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, um, and then there's a lot of, uh, this is when around, this is around the time when I started to notice a lot of repeating dialogue and repeating shots. It was jarring to say, I keep using that word. It was uh, off-putting to say the least, where someone would say something, a character would say something, and then we would move on, and then we would go back and hear that character say it again. And then we would move on, and then we'd go back and hear that character say it again. And I was yeah. curious if there was a reason for that, or if it was just filler. There, uh, It's like, we've only got 110 minutes. It's like, well, you know <laughs> when that one person said that one thing? Play it like three times, and <laughs> now we got three times that much. I do really think that there was just a lot of times that they – I basically think they mismanaged either the money or the pre-production and they just didn't have enough movie when, when all was said and done. And so they're like, okay, well, uh, looks like two more minutes of dude running. Grab that Earth, Wind, and Fire song. <laughs> oh, man. So much running. Uh, there was, so much running. Yeah, so much running, dude. It was like it's like if you ever wanted to know what that, that one scene from Forrest Gump would be stretched out to 90 minutes with a black dude and an Earth, Wind, and Fire song, this is that movie for you. I don't know why the hell you'd ever want to see that person. That sounds like a ridiculous concept for a film. But thanks to you, we have this film. I hope you're happy with yourselves. I wrote at one point uh, at the end of my notes here, uh, this is the the worst version of the Lord of the Rings I have ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So So real quick, Jason, let me ask you. I need to ask you real quick before we move on. um, Why did they pick up Sweetback and... Uh, the other guy that was being beaten by the cops. So they go to the cops show up at that uh, brothel and in the middle of Sweetback's sex show and they're talking to Beetle at the front door, a character that we will get to know really intimately. I love Beetle. He was my favorite. Although admittedly, <laughs> I thought he was I thought he was saying his name was Bill for the entire movie. It wasn't until I went and checked the credits afterwards I was like, "Oh, he's saying Beetle the whole time?" Yeah, Beetle. <laughs> and Cause, yeah, cuz he's cuz he know. has a very 
I almost like that, like Norton, like that Nolan style of like, hey man, what you talking about, man? And you're like, what the hell did that fool just say? I know he talked for two minutes, yeah, but I think a, I heard a, I think I heard a hello a in there somewhere or something. I don't, I'm just, <laughs> guy was difficult <laughs> to understand, but he seemed charming. He had a thick dialect for sure. It, he kind of almost, uh, his character almost kind of reminded me of the dad from Friday to a certain degree. Um, yeah. But uh, just, you know, crass and, and over the top, kind of slapsticky. And I really, really love Beetle. So the cops are talking to Beetle. And then I kind of got distracted dissecting and taking notes on this very, very strange sex show. Like you said, the very godmother came out with sparklers and the whole thing. And next thing you know, they got sweet back in the back of a squad car and they're taking him back to go beat him uh, and his buddy separately. They have him handcuffed and they, uh, why did they take them to begin with? They just felt like beaten up on a, on a black man or was there a purpose? Were they trying to get info? Did you pick up on that at all? What that whole yeah. thing started as? Yeah. I, I think it's more just supposed to be reflective of the fact that society just kind of had, these black men targeted at the time because they say very early on that they don't really have anything, but they're talking to the proprietor of the shop, I guess it would be, or the sex show or whatever it is. And uh, they tell them that they just need somebody to bring downtown to make them look good for their boss, basically. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. And so I think, yeah, just the frivolous nature of a lot of the harassment that they were dealing with, I think is part of the point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and then what really sets up the crux of the film is when um, he's being he being sweet is being taken back to the jail, I believe, by these cops, and they stop and they see these Black Panther revolutionaries, and they get out and they're going to kill this one. Actually, they start beating on him for you know whatever reason they have, and uh, all of a sudden they're going to beat this guy to death, and they basically pull out their handcuffs and they go to wrap them around their wrists like a pair of uh, brass knuckles or something like that. And that's when Sweet intervenes because he knows that this that this guy's going to die. And he basically beats up the cops, uses their own weapons against them, does the handcuff trick himself, saves the other guy. And then the rest of the movie is just him running away. And eventually we figure out that he's basically trying to get to Mexico. But but that's it. That's That's literally... The only story, there's a few things that happen along the way, but that's pretty much the crux of the story. One of the little things that happen is uh, the cops raid the club and then, you know, they go back and they do find Beetle or rather Sweet finds Beetle. And I just love the intro, that sort of long two minute monologue he has. And again, just so everybody listening, if you didn't see this film, I actually have a clip that I'm going to play right now of Beatles' little monologue. I'd be interested to know how many of you are able to understand even half of what this guy says. Let's go ahead and listen here. Is this the bathroom scene? This is indeed the bathroom scene. Nice. You don't have to worry about nothing. I'm Beatle. Me. Beatle, I'm your man. Everybody got a man? I'm your man. It's not rough now. Don't worry about it, baby. Don't worry about it. That makes it feel like a new one, baby. Can you dig it? A brand new one. Yeah. But you know what, man? Like you want to kind of lay out, you know, stretch out a little while. 
Be real cool. Kind of like that. Well, be let you know what's happening, what's going down. Let's worry about nothing, because you need anything, anything at all. Brother, just keep the faith in Beetle. Old Beetle's going to bring you through. Because this is just a skirmish. <laughs> you know how that game go, baby. But you keep the faith in me, and you my man. You my favorite man. Can you take it, baby? Together. You know, maintain. They can't bother you long to be with you. Now you gonna hibernate like that old bear. And don't go nowhere. Can you dig it? Yeah? Ha! Melvin, go out the back door now. Speed on. Don't let nobody know where you at. Let sleeping dogs rest. Can you dig it, baby? Ha ha. Yeah. So we both seem to be in agreement that Beetle is the best character in the film, even when you can't quite understand exactly what he's saying. Do you agree, Ryan? I understood he was taking a shit. I mean, that was a... <laughs> well, because they show you right there. He's not shy about it. He just kind of drops... That was a pretty explicit <laughs> um, sound, sound effects. I mean, for all the money this guy saved, he went and made sure he doubled back on a Foley shit plop in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it was very descriptive. I need the sound guy to go get that. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the funny things about this movie, too, is the decision making. Like, I am shocked, absolutely shocked that they got a helicopter, Ryan. How the hell does a movie like this get a helicopter? So, did they, though, or did they just film, like, the... <laughs> The traffic copter at five o'clock for the news. I, I, I thought that I thought that might have been the case for a minute, but no, I think that they ended up like, cause what, like a, a a police car? It was over the deserts in Mexico, dude. Like it's just gonna be there all of a sudden randomly. Like, oh yeah, I'm just flying over the desert, not surveilling anything. They totally had to pay for that. I mean, apparently Melvin knew Bill Cosby, so he must have known someone with a co- <laughs> with a with a helicopter. You know, hey, could I use your helicopter for the day? Where are we going? Yeah, we're going to you know out to the desert. Let's go. That'd be awesome. By the way, Ryan, I don't know if this was just my stream, but was half of like the voice dubbing way the hell off for you as you were watching this, or was it just my stream? Um. Yeah, that might have been your stream. I, I didn't really notice okay. any problems with that. I will say the audio was has not held up very well over time. Any anytime there was any kind of silence when the, when that uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire song would stop, which may have been all for five minutes throughout the whole film, uh, there was a lot of static and uh, the yeah, noise it was, was brutal. Just ruined. Yeah, it was really bad, man. Uh, like I said, it definitely sounded a lot like that just hiss and noisiness. And the other funny thing is, too, let's go ahead and let's talk about. So a little bit later, the cops go back and they actually interrogate Beetle and they end up holding him up a little bit. They've got him tied to a chair and they blast one of the guns like point blank right next to his ear, making him go deaf. There's this whole thing where they're like, where's Sweetback? Where's Sweetback? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. And I do have a clip of that that I want to play as well. We'll just do these sort of two clips back to back and get out uh, just to sort of give you an indication as to some of the other (laughs) some of the other wonderful sound that this uh, this movie has to offer. Listen. Come on, you can tell us. Seems to be hard of hearing. If you don't talk, it's going to be. Where's Sweetback? Where is he? Where's Sweetback? I don't know where's Sweetback. Where's Sweetback? Come on, boy! Look at me! 
Oh, where's sweet back here? Come on, boy, talk. Where's sweet back here? Come on, boy. Where's sweet back? He must be dead. If he isn't, he's gonna be. Look at me. Where's sweet back? I don't know where he is. Where is he? I don't. I don't know where sweet back. I don't know where sweet back is. Come on. You know. Where's sweet back? I don't know where sweet back. Where's Sweetback? Where's Sweetback? So again, to your point, Ryan, yeah, we've got some brutal audio there, um, but uh, either way, and then the scene after that, takes place at a funeral, and I wasn't sure, so I wanted to ask you, is the implication that the cops killed him in that scene and the funeral was for Beetle? No, no, Beetle showed up later in the film to identify uh, Sweetback's body at the morgue and it ended up he wasn't there. Remember he had his uh, head all bandaged up and they were sliding the trays out of the morgue of uh, some black men that they had murdered uh, proudly hoping that one of them was Sweetback and it wasn't. And uh, they had wheeled Beetle in in a wheelchair uh, to identify the, help identify the body of Sweetback and say, did we get him? And all we see is uh, Beetle's big old grin ear to ear with a bandaged head and like blood coming out of his ears. So no, Beetle oh, did wow. not die. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know whose funeral so that was. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why he was there. This is where the story gets really weird. We go to a biker gang. Um, and he teams up with a biker gang for a minute. Um, I think the, the, yeah, the funeral might've just been to get us to, um, the head, like uh, a one-on-one meeting. I think he was just trying to meet with the head of the church to get advice on where to go. He was trying to go to the farm. He's like, no, you can't go to the farm, man. Then though you're there, this and that, um, he's looking for a place to hide. So he's going throughout his community, trying to look for allies and see who he could trust. And I think the funeral was just a... Uh, backdrop to the members of the community that he was trying to, you know, link up with to get help. That's what I took it as anyway. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. I did think it was really funny, though, because I don't know if you caught this during that church scene. Like, apparently they didn't figure out how to overlay sound effects on top of a background track. And so if you notice, like, the Earth, Wind and Fire song will play and then it'll just cut out. And there'll be like a random sob or a random wail. Right. And yeah. then the and then the music will come back up again. And it's like, the, oh, well, clearly we, we don't have two tracks to work with. So we've just got the one <laughs> and we'll just bandy it back and forth. It's like, dude, yep. that technology has been around for a really long time. Yeah, I don't. I mean, the whole movie was edited that way where you whenever you would switch locations, the music would switch with it sometimes, too. And oftentimes that was very fast. So you would switch to one location and get maybe three seconds of someone doing something with a disco song playing or a funk song or a soul song, and then all of a sudden switch, and all of a sudden now it's like a blues song or an R&B song or something more you know mellow, and then you're back again, and it's just like this whole movie was just so jarring. It was hard to kind of get into and sink my teeth into. Um, look, I, in all fairness, I wanted to like this movie. I love this whole genre Same. of filmmaking. Um I, I think it's important to our society. It was the first time that uh, our uh, the black community and the urban cultures and and people from uh, you know those areas and regions and parts of our country were getting representation, um, not only in films but also as filmmakers. Um, you know, black directors, 
uh, black cinematographers. Um, and it was important that, you know, children have uh, superheroes that were from their community, that looked like them, that uh, that they could relate to. And uh, this whole movement gave them that. This is what Black Panther came from. You know, this is why these things exist. So uh, I get it. Mm-hmm. I- I'm all for it. I just think that this was you know, a real rough around the edges version. Um, and maybe it's because it's the first one, you know, these guys were all sharpening their teeth and learning how to do it. Um, but, uh, again, taking it completely out of context, if you're going to invite me on this show and ask me to talk about this movie specifically, uh, I, I can't sit there and talk about its place in history all the time. You know, the, the movie sure. is a rough one to watch. Um, and uh, man, once you get past, uh, the biker scene, which is pretty much one of the next scenes coming up, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, uh, the rest of the movie is just him on the run, and it is so repetitious. Yeah. I was really, really bored. Yeah. There is something that I do want to bring up. We'll go, let's go ahead and let's talk about this scene real quick that you're referring to. So, yeah, I think he's trying to hide out, and he finds himself up against some bikers that are a group of the Hell's Angels, and they end up challenging him to a duel. It's a knife duel. But instead, he's not going to decide to fight them with a knife. No, he chooses fucking. That's right. Instead of getting into a <laughs> knife fight, he is going to fuck yep. one of the Hell's Angels. In this case, a woman who has just revealed herself to be as such. And uh, again, dude, it's like, it's pretty much. A, oh, and by the way, more circle fucking, more group sex. I was going to say, it's it's basically like another gangbang where like everybody sits around and they're like, they're, they're almost like rubbing their hands together and licking their yes. chops, waiting to I watch know. this go down. And it just, yep. and, and, and look, I don't know if perhaps, and, may, and, and just in talking about it right now, maybe that's part of the statement, right? Like maybe. You know, these are, you know, all the all all the Hells Angels are white guys and girls and they're, you know, watching this black man and, you know, it's all entertainment for their own amusement. And maybe there's some sort of commentary there. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to be kind here, I guess. Then then uh, how do you, uh, you know, the the sex show thing in the beginning then? I don't know, man. I just seemed like. Yeah, no, I I didn't even really believe it as I was saying it, to be completely honest. And then also the. uh, (laughs) How did you feel about her parading around, you know, championing uh, her conquest like she's Bugs Bunny in a boxing match with her hands, you know, above her head, <laughs> doing the, the side to side? Like, ah, I just won the match. Like, that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, this is a, this is an X-rated film. I don't know if we mentioned this, but this is like the second X-rated film that, that we've done on this show now after Fritz the Cat, which like, it probably says something about you and I, buddy. But, uh, uh, the, uh, but I, it does. We, we need to start a side podcast. Exoterica cinema. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just watch all sorts of different porn films and like really dissect them. Like, oh, yeah. what did you think about the doggy style in that one? It seemed a little forced. Uh, hey, look, I'm going to do I'm going to drop some of that knowledge on you right now. Guess what? For as much as Sweetback is doing sex shows, works in a brothel, was raised by prostitutes. He, this man cannot fuck for shit. I, I was watching this movie. I was like, is that, whoa, is that what sex is like? Dude, I'm doing sex wrong. <laughs> I am totally doing no, sex dude, wrong. No, it's funny. 
<laughs> You're absolutely right. I was like, that's not how a good person that fucks fucks. He like, just that's lays really there. Awkward. Like he just lays on top and he's like he's rolling like, around. So the woman even says, and uninterested. The woman even says in the beginning that he loses virginity to as a young boy. Um, she's like, you're not taking a picture. There's no photographer. You can move, honey. And. And then, like, you would think he would be like, oh, okay, and then learn from that. And then we cut to him as, like, a grown man really thrusting and moving. Nope. We cut to him literally on the same woman during the title scene. It's like a weird cross-dissolve where he turns into a grown version of himself on top of the same woman. Like, it's Tom Hanks (laughs) from the movie Big and the Zoltar machine just (laughs) fucked up. And he's still laying on the same woman just, like... Totally static shot. Just kind of, I'm like, did my fucking stream just freeze? Oh no, he's just straight up laying there, not doing anything, not do. And then like, meanwhile, the women are like going nuts for this man. Like this yeah, guy's mandingo, thrashing. Like, yeah, I was like, what is going on? This is garbage. This is some garbage ass oh. sex. I expected more from you, sweetback. So Ryan, this is a perfect time. <laughs> This is a perfect time to bring up this point, okay? And it's something that I didn't really notice right away, and and I thought about it after the fact. So this genre of film that we're talking about, that this movie supposedly gave birth to, right? Black exploitation. Obviously, oh, not porn. I thought you were talking about porn. <laughs> obviously, not too much of a stretch. <laughs> Esoterica. <laughs> You're welcome. That orgasm came free with the show, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome. Mine? No, this... <laughs> no, the one that they just had after listening to oh, my sexy voice. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. Yeah, no, I just... The the implication here is I just gave everybody an orgasm. Except yeah, no, I was just making sure I was still getting paid for this. <laughs> I need to talk to you about that, by so, the way. I haven't gotten a check in a few weeks. I don't know. <laughs> That's <laughs> what all the handies are for, for free, dude. Jason. You think I'm just you think you think I'm just giving you all those handies for fun? No, it's just to keep you on board until I can afford to give you actual money. Well, just keep watching dubbed versions of foreign films and maybe you could afford it, I guess, after a few more weeks. You can <laughs> save up those pennies. <laughs> all right, man. I want to make this point because I feel like it's solid here, okay? This genre we're looking at, it's called black exploitation, okay? And again, it's not much of a stretch to figure out where the black comes from in that. Obviously, African-American, like you say, sort of heroes and superheroes, people being propped up, members of a community that didn't have a voice at that time, suddenly being given that voice on screen. And so to a lot of people uh, in the African-American community that had struggled with being represented on film meant a lot. Okay, here's the other part of the term, though. It's exploitation. Now, here's the thing. When you talk about strict exploitation films, Probably the name that we most associate that is Russ Myers. And that's basically just throw a bunch of tits and ass on screen. That's what we're here for. Give the stupid kids some tits and they'll give us their money. That's all we're here for, right? So when you talk about black exploitation films, I feel like it's very easy to forget that it's a marriage of the African-American community with exploitation films. And so when looked at through that lens... It's actually not entirely surprising that this would be a film laden with sex because that's where the exploitation in black exploitation comes from. Your thoughts? I get it, but I don't get it. I mean, to me, this movie was made 
by Melvin Van Peebles to represent uh, the community that he was in struggle against authority and power and, and to showcase the things that his community was dealing with that he felt were represented in film at that point. So um, when you make a movie like this, I feel like the message gets lost amongst all that exploitation to me. I think that uh, that's something that other filmmakers have learned from um, and strayed away from. Um, I, 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 you know, your Spike Lee's and things like that, they, they don't use any of that, uh, any of those tactics. So I see your point. Are you saying that maybe that that was their, their way of, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down? Is that kind of what you're saying? Like, no, I guess I guess kind of what I'm saying is that I don't necessarily agree that this was a film that was made to really emphasize and represent the struggle of the African-American community at the time. I think there are elements of that that have come into play, but I think at the end of the day, this was first and foremost a money-making vehicle, the way that all exploitation films are. And so by featuring a lot of sex, I think that was a commercial decision and you can point to the fact that this movie made what 30 times over what it cost that that decision was effective and perhaps if it doesn't have that graphic sex it doesn't capture that audience you know I think over time it's maybe easy to romanticize these things and you know go back and say oh look well this one was the first and struggle of the african-american community and you know, the plight of the black man and the 60s and 70s and trying to be accepted as legitimate artists. Like, I understand all that. But I also think at the end of the day, old Melvin just wanted to make a movie that was going to make him some goddamn money. And so he's like, hey, let's throw some tits and dong in there and get people in those seats because sex sells. And I think there's a lot of that in here. Maybe. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't speak on that. I really, um, I will say that... I have cheated the podcast because I wish I had more time to dive into this. Um, I was hoping to watch, uh, I believe Mario Van Peebles made a um, uh, a little biopic about the making of this film called Badass. Indeed he and did, yeah. Mm -hmm. I have heard that it's actually very good and uh, shows the behind the scenes of what actually went into making this film and why it was made and what his dad went through to get it done. Um, and the struggle of all of it. And so um, I would really like to see that and get a little more insight. However, upon finishing this film, um, I'm going to have to take a breather and then come and revisit it <laughs> down the road. I don't know if I'm like ready to take a deep dive into into more sweetbacks. I think I just need a break from this and, and to just yeah. go move on to the next... Just chill till the next episode, as they say. <laughs> a little sweet back goes a long way. And we learned that from the movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, around this time, I uh, also wrote uh, Sweetback has no dialogue, really, throughout the film. Yes. Um, and it, it becomes increasingly more so as the film goes on. Uh, the music actually does a lot of the talking for him and narrates the picture more and more and more as we get to the climax of the film. So um, he'll have little quips and one-liners, but 
when I say one-liners, I mean one-liners. And <laughs> then as the movie goes on, the there's like the the music starts to narrate and take over and and talk about what what Sweetback is doing and cheering him on and motivating and and kind of carrying the picture on a little bit. And other than that, it's all your surrounding cast that is asking rhetorical questions, um, just giving random facts, directing him in certain places while he just kind of scowls and looks from afar <laughs> like a badass. So that's uh, that was kind of odd. Uh, that was an odd way to carry on through a movie with my uh, protagonist. <laughs> I wasn't sure how you felt about that. <laughs> I actually had in my notes that Sweet Sweetback is just Black Dirk Diggler. Not particularly <laughs> charismatic, not particularly useful, just sort of is floating around and happens to be good at banging and has a big dick. And that's really it. So, yeah, it's kind of weird because... I mean, he's not good at banging, so... Because <laughs> like you say, you know, like, when you view this film through its historical lens and, you know, again, you're kind of expecting the film that you alluded to, but... There's just a lot of parts of this film that really make me question how seriously they took it. First and foremost, like you say, Sweet doesn't actually really do anything. He doesn't have a purpose. He's not motivated by anything. He's just sort of drifting and is and just sort of goes wherever life kind of sends him and path of least resistance, which is why he's a sex worker. So I don't really get a lot of that. Like, I mean, yes, of course, he defends, you know, this man who's being unjustly attacked, but it wasn't really like it was some sort of release for him. You know, he didn't have all these pent-up emotions. He didn't particularly show any emotion toward anything. So it's really kind of hard to sympathize with him as this crusader of sorts when we're really not given any opportunities to to see him exercise that. So it's kind of yeah, weird right. the way they just approached his character as a whole. You're not wrong. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's uh, you were thrust into this journey so quickly, thrust into it. Get it? And, and <laughs> that, you know, you never really had a chance to to latch onto this character and uh, and go and go along with him. You know, for the ride, I guess. Sure. And so yeah. And then to my point, in terms of this being like an exploitation film and, and old Melvin not necessarily taking things super seriously all the time, like we get that one scene where after they get to Mexico, the, the shoe shining scene with the with the guy yeah, who's yeah. literally shining shoes with his butt <laughs> with his like stupid yeah. grin There's on his so face. There's so much and, random shit in this movie like that. Like this. Movie yeah. Does, yeah. So you're telling me that like you're going to make a, a super serious, you know, society uh, a movie that criticizes society, try to hold a mirror up to it, and then throw in some stupid scene of a guy shining shoes with his butt with a stupid grin. Like, those things just do not jive at all, man. Yeah, I I almost wondered if that wasn't shown as, like, as a juxtaposition to, from, from, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. To, oh, from, dude, you're trying us, so hard for old Van Peebles, dude. He does not deserve this, but you're giving it your fucking best, and I love you for it. Go ahead. No, I mean, because you got sweet backs, and you have the struggle of, uh, you know, the black community against the man, but then you have that guy who is more representative of uh, the Crows and Dumbo or or the Jim Crow era, you know, the 
the dancing and juking and jiving, you know, kind of. I thought maybe that there was like some comparison going on there. That was the only explanation that I could come up with for why he existed in this film, because otherwise, <laughs> why? You know, dude, because I'm telling you, going back to what I said earlier, they came up way short on footage. They're just like, guys, okay. I need anything. And someone was like, we got that scene of that dude polishing shoes with his butt. And Melvin was like, I love it. I love it. That's another 30 seconds. Let's go get it in there. All right. All right. I mean, I was trying to find some hidden meaning to this whole thing and, and get all, you know. But and look, no, not. look, I, 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 I get it. I, I wish I could say it, like, but I, I really do think that in, in some of these cases, like, we're putting way more work into this than he did. And he, again, I think some of this was just uh, like, he came up short on footage, put in more running, put in more butt polishing, whatever we got, just throw it in there. Also makes you wonder why they went with the uh, fast editing. I wonder if they regretted that earlier. Like shit, why did we go back <laughs> and cut all that we so have, quickly? We, we could have, have bought another seven minutes out of that. Yeah. I think that they, <laughs> each of everything you saw on film was all the good stuff they had. So if they only had five <laughs> seconds of it, that's all they had. You know, the rest of it was shot. So I don't know. That's how I took it. It was all just whatever was usable made it on the screen and uh, moving on. I don't think they were intentional. Absolutely. It wasn't like he was going Absolutely. for that. Um, otherwise, it would have been more cohesive if that was the case. If they if he was just trying to make a fast paced thriller of a man on the run. Um, uh, cool. I'm in for that. Good movies have been made with a, as simple of premise as that. Um, follow that bird with Big Bird. It's exactly that film. <laughs> <laughs> that is this movie, basically. Oh, um, man. I mean, not quite as much group sex, but, you know, there's some. <laughs> Oscar wasn't so grouchy in that one. Uh, you know. <laughs> Five, he took it two, in the can. Three, hey, oh, <laughs> took it in the can. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I will also oh, add, man. Jason, that um, Sweetback is the worst uh, player of hide and go seek of all time. Uh, everywhere <laughs> he goes throughout this whole film, he is found immediately. He is promised and sworn. <laughs> In blood oath by his whole community that they will not rat him out. And yet 30 seconds after he lands anywhere, he gets like two shots into a game of pool at this one hideout that he was sworn would not be found by the biker gang. Dude, two shots into a game of pool. The cops show up with guns. I was like, how the fuck do they keep finding him? Who's narking him out? This guy sucks at hide and go seek. Yeah, well, especially when you're banging chicks when you're supposed to be hiding out in the tall grass. Like, what the also hell is true. that? Like, yeah, you're hiding for your life, best. and then they're like, <laughs> what's behind this grass? And then he's like, oh. and he's got his pants down. It's like, are you kidding me right now, dude? Like, you just had to get more, like, more Melvin butt in this movie because it's well, always the same scene. It's always it him is. on top of the girl. It's never a sexy doggy style where we get the, the woman's physique and shape. No, it's always Melvin's butt going <laughs> back and forth, up and down. Yeah, I've seen enough. Okay, give me something else here. Let's earn a Two second X on that X rating and give me more. <laughs> Just sell out, man. Sell out. Two things about that. Uh, one, maybe he figured that he has sex so still and so quiet, like Drax and Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe they won't hear him or see him. 
he just moved so slowly <laughs> during sex. And two, maybe he really wanted to have sex, but there was no group to watch him. So he thought maybe <laughs> if he got the cops over, oh, he could finish and move on with his life and then get back to playing hide-and-go-seek. He's like, maybe maybe if I just get these cops over here to watch, I, could, <laughs> I just can't finish well, dude, without no. watching. I think you may have just stumbled onto like a secret of the film that maybe a lot of people, certainly I didn't notice, but maybe part of the hidden subtext is that Sweet Sweetback draws his sexual power from people gathering and watching him. And so this scene actually exists to remind us that without all of those people watching, he cannot perform adequately. Wonder Twin Powers activate? Yeah, it's something like that. (laughs) Wonder Dick Power, (laughs) activate! (laughs) Yeah, I... I mean, all these things are are definite uh, possibilities, um, and if any one of them are true, would make this film a better picture and more enjoyable. To me personally. <laughs> so I hope they're all true. If I ever watch this movie again, which Lord help me, I won't. Uh, I will envision all these things to be true. And if anyone is watching with me, which Lord help them, they won't be. Uh, <laughs> I will make sure to share all these uh, inner secrets and let them know. The reason he does this absolutely. Is, so the film ends with him running through mexico he has this infected wound and as you know we we want to teach any of the children or anyone else when you have an infected (laughs) wound the best thing to do is grab a huge clump of dirt rub some dirt on it it right in there mash all that dirt into that infection and then wrap (laughs) it with a tight cloth and when you wake up after passing out the next morning that shit's gonna be good to go brah Good to go. Time to go play some more shitty ass hide and seek. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, some dogs end up getting sicked on him after they find him banging the hippie chick, and he runs away. And then you know we're sort of left to wonder if uh, they got him or not. And then cut to the next day, and all the dogs are dead in the water, and Sweet's sort of standing there triumphantly on a mountain. Get a quick little zoom because it's the seventies, and of course, and then peace out movie over no explanation and a bit anticlimactic to say the least well there is text on the screen leading to a sequel uh which i don't think was ever made <laughs> saying he's coming back for revenge on all you motherfuckers that uh, all you jive suckers yeah yeah there was something along those along those lines uh but yeah he was he was coming back to get his very soon so don't you worry about old sweet bag. <laughs> so that was the movie man that was crazy hit me up with your three adjectives uh jarring uh i said this uh, several times i'll say it again this movie uh kept finding new ways to take me out of it and uh and it upset my concentration um uncomfortable uh just that you know that i i don't mind some good sexing in a movie. I really don't, but this wasn't good sexing. And the, um, <laughs> the, the police brutality. I mean, look, dude, uh, these are exhausting times we're living in. And just the, the social commentary we live with on a day to day basis. Uh, I know we make fun here on esoterica cinema and jokes are made, but, uh, it's something I take very seriously. What's going on in our communities. And, um, yeah, it's it's rough out there, and to see it on film and to watch uh, the police brutality going on, you know, so many years ago, 
and knowing that that's all still happening to this day. Um, and, uh, and they had to make movies about it to bring that to the white communities and to make knowledge and public knowledge of this, that this, Hey, look, this is happening. And, uh, nobody knew, you know, or, or if they did, it was, you know, people were turning a blind eye to it or justifying it in various ways, the same way they're doing now. So, you know, th- Seven million different ways this movie made me uncomfortable, whether it's the bad filmmaking or the little hair on the gate, <laughs> the, the the racism, all of it, the child rape. I mean, let's not leave that out. Um, all of it. And then uh, ego boost, which I know is two words. But uh, as I said before, feeling pretty good about my sex life after watching this movie. <laughs> I mean, he did have some pretty good oh, buns, man. though. Um, you know, they call me sweet <laughs> back for a reason. But yeah. There you go. Those are, what about you, buddy? So for me, uh the first one I had was Raw. And I'm not just talking about old Melvin Raw dogging it on set like I heard <laughs> that he did. And Mario. I'm just talking. <laughs> it's a family just talking affair. about the overall nature of this film just being incredibly rough around the edges and it stars you know real people from real communities that have no acting experience you're getting some rough sound you're getting some rough visuals and there's probably some elements that came from that that certain people are going to like and certain people responded to but The next one that I have is Aimless, and I think that kind of carries over from Raw. This is a film that doesn't really know what it wants to be other than the fact that it knows it wants to be a film. You know, I get when I watch this film, I get the vibe of like, oh, okay, this is someone who didn't know what they were doing, but they really wanted to make a film. And, you know, it may have meant a lot to them, but they at the same time didn't really understand the medium and the production and everything that goes along with it. So as you say, you know, the last half hour is literally just this dude running from here, there and everywhere. And we've lost sight of the story and it just wanders all over the place trying to find itself. However, from that, I also believe that it's passionately created as another hyphenated one like yours, but, uh, Say what you will, obviously neither of us like this film, I don't have good things to say about this film, but I will give it credit because it was clear that the dude that made it, again to my point earlier, really wanted to make a movie, and that does come across, and whether he wanted it to just be financially successful, whether he did want to make a statement, the fact of the matter is for one reason or another, this dude was super passionate about getting this movie made, he did it. It worked out to his benefit, and whatever we may think of the quality of the film, just the fact that it exists and this guy was able to do what he did on an independent level is is admirable. So, raw, aimless, passionately created. Ryan, we're going to go ahead and hit him up with our star rating and grade rating. Why don't you tell us what grade that you're going to give Sweet Sweetback's badass song? Uh, I'm going to give Sweet back the same thing he gave every lady he came across, the big old D. Ew! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, I'm right there with you, dude. I ended up giving this two stars. I I, I really wanted to give it more. I even wrote down two and a half initially, but it's just, you know, I want to give it the credit because of the history, but it's just, I can't. 
I can't give this movie any more than two stars. And without that historical context, it probably would have came in even lower. You know, maybe something like a like a one and a half or even a one. Like it, it was is not a pleasant movie. It's rough in a lot of ways. I will say, kind of much like Fritz the Cat, I'm glad to have seen it. It'll be the first and last time that I watch it, but I can now say that I've seen it. I have a little bit of context for the genre and where it started from and how it began. So hopefully I can glean a little bit of appreciation for those movies that came after. But very rough film. So yeah, sorry guys if uh, if you didn't like this one the same way that, that Ryan and I did. I mean, that's part of the uh, random element of this whole program is you don't always get good ones. And uh, this, this one was rough. So we're going to go ahead and cut to a quick fake commercial break. And we will be back afterwards to discuss the comparisons as well as select our new movies for our next episodes. Stay tuned. This summer, Xenon Pictures invites you to return to a familiar world. Evil is coming to the Shire, to the entire world as we know it. Something must be done. You ain't got to worry about nothing, baby. I'm your man, Beetle. B-E-E-T Yeah Sauron returns to recapture what was once his and chase down the black community We must return the ring to where it was forged Mexico I'm almost finished with these ladies I'ma get right to it, you dig? It It's imperative that we uh. He heard you, baby let the man finish up what he's got going on on the south side of these ladies, and we'll hustle down on the flip flop. Yeah. In an epic tale, join Sweet and Beetle as they span the globe to rid the world of an evil older than time. Shit, man. We gonna need some help. You best hibernate like a big old bear after the honey side. Winter coming. You know it's snowing on the mountaintop. You best get sleepy. Know what I'm saying? Yeah. Alliances are forged in stone, in both the light and in the darkness. Oh damn! Sauron's with the cops? What they want with you? We best beat feet to the concrete? Hang tight. I'm about to put on a show. Behold, I was risen from beyond to reclaim what he... Wait, is he? Is he a Vinsec right now? Yeah. Well, he... he doesn't seem very good at it. Starring Melvin Van Peebles in a film you know, but not quite like this. With a cameo appearance by Bill Cosby as Gollum. The cave and the fish and my precious. I would like to press his back. You shall not pass! Oh shit, I'm out of here! Run, sweet back! Melvin Van Peebles presents... The Lord of the Rings. If we don't whoop these cops, then grease ain't lard, cement ain't hard, eggs ain't a poultry, and meat ain't a grocery. And Mona Lisa was a man. All right, Ryan. So those are a couple of films that I don't believe could be any more different than one another, which is going to make our comparison feature this week Quite interesting. So, Ryan, I am dying to hear how are you going to compare these two films of Hero and Sweet Sweet back to one another? Uh, you know, one had a nameless hero. 
one had the hero's name in the title. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Those seem very different. Both uh, both did follow very quiet, focused protagonists through a journey. Um, one uh, was more of an articulate story, <laughs> definitely. And one was a mess. One was like fine cuisine, you know, all delicately put on the plate with a little sauce drizzle. And one was like just a messy bowl of goulash that you give to Oliver Twist <laughs> and ask, would you like some more? Um, I thought uh, if I was going to compare <clears throat> these two films, the main thing that they do have in common is um, finding uh, interesting ways to bring focus to new cultures that maybe uh, different audiences weren't um, uh, finding represented. Um, you know, through Hero, we got to go through the dynasties of uh, ancient China, which I found very interesting uh, to kind of learn about a little bit about that history, even though it was done uh, in a fantastical way um, with wobbly uh, rubber staffs and everything and, and all the wire work and everything that we criticized. Uh, it, it was... Um, you know, kind of fun to go through, you know, take a romp through that. That's not something you see represented in uh, cinema, at least not in America and Western culture uh, very much. And so, and, and I felt the same about Sweetbacks. I thought that that was, um, uh, you know, a unique voice uh, at a very quiet time that uh, brought, you know, put a spotlight on the urban community and uh, and had some representation from, uh, an otherwise unrepresented group in uh, westernized cinema. So uh, on that way, they are they are similar. Um, but uh, as far as, you know, story and, and I mean, Hero was such a mathematical equation of film uh, making, especially cinematography. Uh, it, it was so, like, it was just a, a very you know, articulate painting almost. Um, but whereas Sweetbacks was like a Pollock, you know, just a throwing a bunch of shit at, at the canvas. And um, some people may call it art. Some people may call it a mess. Um, some people could find beauty in it. Uh, it just wasn't for me. That doesn't mean it's not for somebody. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of where I go with it. How about you? That's some good analysis, man. I got to stop having you go first because I think you kind of took a lot of what I was going to say and in this case did so very eloquently. So, uh, yeah, feeling a little, uh, feeling a little noivous here. Yeah. Do you want me to dumb it down? Uh, but <laughs> could you please, sir? Uh, you're at about a, an A. I need you to about a C plus at most. Both of these films are ultimately smaller films that focus on a sort of single protagonist and a small handful of people that he interacts with. To your point, you know, Nameless is the quiet, unassuming type, as is Sweetback, so there's a lot of comparisons between their overall natures. I think a lot of the contrast comes in Nameless being very deliberate in how he presents himself versus Sweet, who just kind of more or less coasts through life. But they're ultimately stories of men going on these solitary journeys whether or not they like it, sort of end up representing larger segments of society. Nameless knows what he's doing because he's going to assassinate the king on behalf of his people, and he's quite aware of that, and this is all a ruse. And with Sweet, it's really more sort of like an unintentional inspiration of people to sort of rebel against authority and band together in that resistance. So 
yeah, at the end of the day, we were able to find some comparisons here that maybe weren't quite on the surface, but, uh, you know, somehow or another, we always pull it off, man. I don't know how we do it, but we do. One man had a mustache and the other man didn't have a mustache. <laughs> there you go. Did you, you can edit did, out all the, did, the eloquent stuff out and then just play that and then our, and then you'll come out looking really good. that definitely reminded me of like the chris farley show like did you did you did you you ever see die hard (laughs) that that, that was awesome (laughs) all right buddy well uh we are at that time where every full-length episode we draw some new films for the next one you excited man I am. I am. This is always my one of my favorite parts of the show. It uh, governs how my week is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> you hold know, my right? fate it's in your hands. Like... <laughs> Some of these ones, I mean, but we've got awesome movies on this list, man. I mean, it's, it's we've been on again, a tear, it's so all bro. over we've the been, place. Yeah, we we have been on a roll. Look, Sweetback was a bit of a setback. Uh, can't spell Sweetback without setback. <laughs> And uh, sweet but, step backs, badass song. <laughs> and uh, but before that, uh, dude, Lighthouse, Paz of Glory, High and Low, Hero, all great films. Uh, I've been I've been having a lot of fun with this. So don't do me dirty, my friend. Let's do this right. What do you got for me? <laughs> all right, man, we're going to roll these dice as we always do with our random number generator. As of this moment, we have 161 films on this list. We usually try to keep it around 160, so we're trending there. And uh, for our first film, we are going to generate the number. That number is 121. When we scroll down our list to 121, Ryan, we have got a great film that I have not seen in forever. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's the diving bell and the butterfly. Did you catch that one? I did. Yeah, but it, Dude, I saw it, it. I saw it when it first came out. Same, exactly. I actually added this one to the list. I remember doing so because it was one of those films that I had completely forgotten about, and then it came up on some list or whatever I was doing, and I remember being like, it was just one of those things where it's like just hearing the name. It was like, oh my god, I remember that movie very vividly but i haven't watched it literally except the one time that it came out so uh yeah. this is gonna be a fun one to go back to uh julian schnabel or schnabel i forget how you say his name uh guy did basquiat a couple other films so really looking uh, forward to that i just know him as mr here. schnabel from school of rock <laughs> <laughs> all right man so uh diving bell and the butterfly gonna be a good one for us to watch number two the film that we are the other film rather that we are gonna watch alongside that is number 31, something a little bit earlier in the list. And as we go up, oh, wow, Ryan, number 31. I don't know if you saw this. This one's a recent one, and I'm thinking that we'll probably want to do the director's cut. We, we can maybe decide that right now. Dr. Sleep. Ooh. Did you ever see Dr. Sleep? No, no. Is This, this is a sequel to uh, The Shining, right? Absolutely. So in the spirit of this show, absolutely everybody has seen The Shining. And based on the box office return, absolutely nobody has seen Dr. Sleep. Because that movie lost a fuck ton of money. <laughs> it's just yep. Really, really, we all doctor really slept on that, that one. 
<laughs> so, uh, but I've actually heard it's a it's a, it's a good film. Uh, a lot of people that have recommended it to me sort of position it as though it's one of those movies that maybe might catch on as sort of like a cult film later. And apparently, the director's cut is quite good as well. So, Ryan, I, I know you're not always a fan of the longer films, but I've heard the extra time on this one is worth it. What do you say, dude? Should we do the the director's cut for Doctor Sleep? Yeah, fuck it, let's do it. I, I'm not a film. I'm not a fan of of longer films that feel like longer films. If it's justified and you could, you know, pack more in, it's got room to grow. Let's do it. Yeah, no, like I said, I mean, obviously, not having seen the films, I can't say it with any level of certainty. But I've I've heard the the director's cut is quite good. So we're gonna go ahead and we are going to do the director's cut of Doctor Sleep with the diving bell and the butterfly. Ryan, I don't know about you, I'm really excited about these two films, man. I mean, but, they're they're yeah. newer films. Firstly, you know, we've had a lot of older films and foreign films. Uh, I do know the I do know the diving bell and the butterfly is. Uh, a foreign language film, but you also can watch it dubbed. Uh, just if you want to, if you want to save of... ninety nine cents. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because the experience of the film is how you're sort of trapped in the body of this coma victim, if I remember correctly. And so, uh, a lot of it is you know people talking to you and sort of the aural sensations that go along with that. So I'd imagine the film is sort of meant to be watched. Uh, without subtitles, I'm going to watch the original. Maybe I'll go back and watch it without. I'm just saying there's not a lot of movies that you can justify having to watch in a dub over the original. And if you were going to do it for one, you know, it'd probably be this film. But that being said, I, I can't bring myself to do it, man. We got to we, we got to do it old school, dude. We got to do it the way okay. it was intended, the way it was made. But our listeners, you might want to do it that way. And you have our blessing. Just keep listening to the show. All for you. And what about uh, next week's half episode, buddy? What do you got for us? All right, man. So seeing as how we are approaching the end of the year here, it really seemed uh, appropriate that for the end of 2020, we would go ahead and do Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, which, hey, Ooh, could be that's here a good any one. minute the way things are going, you know? Uh but you know what, buddy? I think I found my friend for the end of the world in you. Oh. Aww. Yeah. Kick on the Bowie Isn't vinyl. A- Absolutely. Let's do this. In the spirit of the holidays, I just figured we'd actually go out with something kind of warm and fuzzy for once. So there you go, listeners. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie Knightley, Steve Carell, Pat Oswalt, Adam Brody. There's a lot to love about this movie. Um, I- I'm really looking So it sounds like you've seen one. it then. Uh, I saw it when it first, first, first came out, um, and I loved it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to see it again and review it with you. So I, cool. I remember bits and pieces about it. Um, I remember it having a great soundtrack, uh, and I remember it being a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Um, this is uh, Lorraine Scafaria, um, who made Hustlers uh, a year ago. I did not see really? that film. So uh, see, they seem like very different critical films. success, I believe. A lot of people like that movie. So this is her yeah, first film that we're about to see. Seeking a friend. Excellent. The end of the world. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen this one before, so I'm really looking forward to it. Man, three 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 films I'm very excited to watch. I'm expecting good things out of all of them, man. So uh don't forget to our listeners, if you would like to reach out to us, you can do so one of two ways right now. We are on the Twitter at esoterica cinema you can go ahead and give us a follow there we'll follow you back 
And uh, do reach out to us and let us know what you think about the films. If perhaps you don't prefer Twitter and you like having a little bit more time to talk, then instead of just the 280 characters, you can go ahead and send us an email at esotericacinema at gmail.com. Maybe there's a chance that you disagree with us on some of these movies and you want to let us hear it. Maybe there's a chance that you think we were spot on. Maybe there's a chance that you think Ryan's sexy, sultry voice is just worth reaching out and telling us about. Or, you know, Ryan, I'm sure there's someone out there right now eating a great muffin and they just want to tell somebody how good that muffin is. All these people can reach out to us and let us know through Twitter or email. So yeah, make sure to reach out to us, and then, as a reminder, we will be back in two weeks with our next episode, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Two weeks after that, we're going to come at you with our next full-length episode, and that is going to be the films that we just announced right now, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and Doctor Sleep, which, if any of our listeners want to watch the same version that we'll be discussing, we will be looking at the director's cut. So, Ryan, it's been a ton of fun. Listeners, it's been great, and we will see you on the next episode of Esoterica Cinema. Thanks for having me, Jason. I have 10 people here ready to watch me have sex. I'm signing off to go get some doctor sleep, buddy. Have a good night. You didn't invite me again, damn it. (laughs) From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great American anti-hero, Nick Ventner in... White out. Nick is a bit of a lush, preferring whiskey to water and bar hopping to exercise. But when a mysterious benefactor hires Nick to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, Nick sobers up just enough to take on the case. Featuring non-stop action and a hilarious wit, White Out by Ashton McCauley is a laugh-a-minute thrill ride that will keep you turning the pages until the very end. White Out, available now in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.